Welcome to Rogue Bogues. This is episode 22, an exciting pod. We have a special guest that we will be announcing shortly. But first of all, welcome to the big fella pro. Bogues, how you doing, brother? I'm good. I'm good. Some, some shocking news to start with. We just want a quick shout out. Rest in peace to Mark Eden. Um, our thoughts are with his oh, family. Jesus. He passed away at 64 years old. He played from 1982 to 1993. He led the league in blocks one year with 5.6, which still stands as an all-time record. Um, there hasn't been a whole lot of news coming out about it. Looks to be a an accident. Um, he was on a on a on a bicycle, um, but we haven't got oh, a whole lot of details. So rest in peace to Mark Eden. I'd never really crossed paths with him when I was in Utah, but he's a he's a Utah guy through and through. Lives in Park City, but some tragic news to um, to start with, bro. Folks, you very rarely, especially in the NBA, do you have people that universally said the guy's an unbelievable human being. And anybody you talk to, players, coaches, media, you know, historians of the game, agents, they all say unbelievable fucking things about this guy. Um, uh, yeah, excuse my language for the first time and only time I'll ever apologize for swearing because that guy was an unbelievable human being. And when I saw that this morning, I was like, I had to do a double tech because the guy's a great dude, man. He, yeah. And, he, and uh, he reportedly yeah. was mentoring and helping out Rudy Gobert as well. They had a pretty good relationship. So anyway, rest in peace, to, uh, Mark Eden, and condolences to the family. To a bit more positive news, Pro, this one's not on the run sheet, but I have officially submitted my paperwork to be an owner in the NBL with the Sydney Kings. It's happened today. Dude, can I get a fucking job? I mean, come on. I mean, <laughs> jobs seriously. For, yeah. Jobs for the boys. Jobs for the boys. But I officially lodged the paperwork. We haven't heard back from the league yet, pro. So hopefully it all gets approved. Well, tell me about the process though for a minute, if you don't mind. Like what? So you just put your paperwork in as like, you know, anything that you could share about it? Like, well, it was in my, in my, employment, of- in my employment agreement and my playing contract. There were shares um, that were mm-hmm. ready upon retirement and- I basically have just formally written a letter to the league to say I will be taking up those shares. Simple as that. Um, so awesome. We huh? haven't heard back yet. We know there's uh, you know some some issues that were prevalent between the owner of the league and myself, but hopefully that's all water off a duck's back and we can move on and, and make this league even better. But just some good news and it'll hit the the podcast waves once this is live um, and it'll be in the media the next couple of days. So just something that I thought the listeners would be interested in, but. Without further ado, Pro, we have a very special guest here. Um, he is the host of the House of Strauss pod, works for The Athletic or writes for The Athletic or whatever you want to call it. Ethan Sherwood Strauss, welcome to the show. Oh, man, it's just humbling to be invited on the number one Kwame Brown podcast uh, in the world. <laughs> I'm very happy to be here, guys. A sense the tone of sarcasm there. I like it. I like it. But uh, quick run through. <laughs> you don't want to be on that shit list. <laughs> I'm just overcompensating because I got to be honest. I'm looking at the run sheet and I'm going, oh, shit. You guys are hitting on, I mean, not only the playoffs, but just so many, so many controversial, fraught topics. I am... I am scared that this is where it comes to an end for me, boys. Rename I mean, this to canceled. Because- Rename it to canceled. You know, I, I know the athletic staff is so used to just tweeting out that $1 a month sale that you got to take advantage of. I know they're fucking busy doing that shit. We, Bogues and I actually fucking work once in a while, just so you guys know. Ah, uh, okay, okay. I see. I see how it is. We'll see. We'll see. We'll see. Yeah, no shit. Zero dollars a month. Okay, so for our listeners, Ethan graduated from Cal. He's worked in the NBA for many years. 
before leaving to write for the NBA permanently. He he was with uh, he joined Warriors World and even started showing up at Oracle Arena apparently back in the day. Get this, in his first season with ESPN, he picked the Warriors to win their first title in 40 years, and guess what happened, bro? They won. So that's kind of gives him a bit of street cred. He also is a Golden State beat writer, a reporter for The Athletic. Uh, I'll, a- I'll jump in. I'm not a Golden State beat writer. A beat writer is Anthony Slater, who does, I mean, a way better job than I used to do back in the day on that beat. I'm You're a, pretty much I'm a Warriors-only guy. You're pretty much a Warriors-only guy, let's be honest. Oh, well, well, that and TV ratings that we'll get to. But okay, continue. I, I think this is from like the book jacket it of, is. of my book, I believe. It is. So update your damn book jacket. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay, continue. Tell me more about me. This is what we do. Did your book outsell Ron Artest's rap album? I just want to know <laughs> you know, what, what the numbers were. <laughs> well, I don't know. I made my money back. Did he make his money back? I mean, that's the way we can really find out, I suppose. But I was yeah. happy... I was happy with how it sold, is the summation, especially given, I mean, geez, uh, with every bookstore in America closed and my book came out, that was suboptimal. So I was very pleased with what the sales were. But continue, continue. More about me. Me, me, me. Not so important was was everything I just spoke about. Something that was more important. You were, you were the man that famously drove Kevin Durant out of town with the Golden State Warriors. That that's probably the your number one. I say your your number two claim to fame. Your number one is saying the Warriors would have won it, and then the negative was you, you drove KD out of town. You and I had a love hate relationship early on. We used to get into it a little bit um, more and more from a sarcastic banter type. Is is why I kind of enjoyed mm. you, and I, I guess I'd call you my friend now. So that's the the loves and kisses. But yeah, you definitely definitely not on um, Kevin Durant's Christmas list, Ethan. Well, I, I'm hoping it goes the way of uh, what we got and uh, my rapport with Andre Iguodala, where there was that love hate relationship, but afterwards a very good rapport. But uh, you know, I've, I'm waiting by the phone. I haven't gotten any calls from from Kevin Durant, it might not happen. We might not become friends uh, post-Warriors career, so that would be very disappointing. Are you sure there was no uh, tweets from KD Burner 25 on Twitter that they apologized maybe? <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. We'll sh- we shall see about it. But to what you're saying, it is one of the nice things about being a beat writer and then seeing guys grow up a bit. And the dynamic really does change when a guy leaves. I mean, uh, your friend Harrison Barnes is somebody who did not like my coverage and I don't think liked me very much because of it. But at least when I see him now, it's very cordial. And it's it's funny how that shift happens and how so much of it is in the moment. And then after a certain point, you can reminisce because you were just both there for a crazy time in the world. Yeah. And you, I mean, you have to be around on our good days and bad days and there's days that you have to ask questions when you know you're going to get pushed back and and things are going to be a little bit testy so it's it's kind of a hard relationship for guys to to build with media but i mean i would argue that you know once i left as well the same thing like we we've probably been in touch more once i was out of the nba than we were the whole time i was in the nba right yeah Well, yeah. And I think part of that too is that I feel weird on my end because inevitably it turns from a rapport or just communication to wanting something from somebody. And then you just feel like a, like a piece of shit. You feel like you're using people. And I think maybe that's why I be, I should be better at my job. If I was more comfortable with that, if I knew how to leverage relationships and foster them in order to milk them, uh, I would be better at the whole gambit. But 
it got a, it got a really weird. It got especially weird with how popular the Warriors were, where it was just completely ravenous and anything from anybody could be used. And I had moments where, because I was a beat reporter back then, I just remember I was having to ask Steph some sort of question about him liking something on IG, which was stirring up drama. And I saw him look at me and start to respond. And I just stopped him. I just said, just, I, I, I can't, I can't do this. <laughs> like, <laughs> I can't do this. I hate myself right now. I, t- I completely, I can look into your eyes and I can see that you hate me because of this. And it's completely deserved. Uh, but you've got to be the remora fish if you have a particular job at a particular moment in NBA media. And that's just how it is. Yeah. I mean, it makes, it makes for some fun musings, especially in a locker room. How many um, how many times have you been threatened to be beaten up by a player, Strauss? Uh, once by you. Um, oh, that would have been sarcastic. So, that would have been sarcastic. I don't know, man. It was one of those that could have been taken either way. I believe what happened was that I tweeted that you had a hobo beard, and I didn't know anybody was reading it at the time. It's just my <laughs> it was just my aesthetic judgment. And then I go into the locker room after the game, and you point at me and you go, "I'll kick your ass, man!" And it took me a few seconds to go. Wait, well, oh yeah, the hobo beard. That's that's what he's mad about. Now, I don't think you were completely serious, but I think you definitely wanted to say it in a way where I wouldn't be quite sure. You know, like you you, you got to let them hear some footsteps, uh, make them feel you, like they say on defense. So I guess you count. So that's that's one, and uh, I, then there's another one I'm thinking about that I will not reveal. Uh, and I got about three. <laughs> I got about three. I remember David Lee once said, almost like a kung fu movie, uh, when I said they should trade him, he said, you chose wrong, Strauss. And it felt very epic. <laughs> felt like we were in a standoff. Because it was the empty locker room in pregame, too. So there weren't a lot of people around. It was like, da, da, da. it was just very, very good standoff. And I think I just said, prove me wrong and whatever, whatever. But even with David at the end, I think I had a decent rapport with him by 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 when he left you'd have to ask him um so i think it's probably eh, three or four times and i don't think that's unusual i mean most people i know who have been in this business and who have had to do it on a beat level have some sort of crazy story about a player confronting them in the locker room and yelling at them and having to have it out and having to go back to work the next day. And it's one of the reasons why I think there's a big chasm in NBA media between people who have done that kind of job uh, versus, and I'm not knocking it because great analysis can come this way, but people who have who have been involved in NBA Twitter or have done it purely from the couch, um, it's just a different it's a different world and it's a different thing and it's a dividing line. If you're in the NBA, if you're having to just get on a plane and follow a team around and be almost like a carny cut off from everybody else in civilization, it's just, it's a different lifestyle and it's a different perspective on the league. Yeah, that's one we've all, we've all lived. So we definitely get that. One final question before we get into the NBA playoffs, how many guys in the locker room would you walk in and give a bro hug to? And dap up and shoot the shit with like your best buddies. Um, maybe about five. I'd usually, and this is when I was being cynical, I'd usually target a few guys who weren't gonna get that much playing time. I would go the opposite route of those trainers you talk about who would target guys who would <laughs> uh who would be yeah. getting a bunch of minutes and touches as their rocket ship to the top. I would definitely try to have a good rapport 
with a few guys who weren't that involved because they had plenty of time to talk. Nobody else was really bothering them. And they might be able to just explain some stuff to me. And I'm not talking about dish and dirt or anything like that, just strategy, that type of thing, because I thought that was always a nice, useful thing you could do um, as a beat writer is to get into the actual game in a way that other people weren't really getting into. And I mean, and this is, I I can understand the frustration a lot of NBA players have because we do not know a lot of what you guys know. And especially when I started out, I didn't know shit about shit. I didn't know that there were hand signals that the coaches use that turn into plays, you know, these very basic things. And you learn how little you know, and that kind of allows you to ask other people who do know. But I found it way easier to do that with a guy who is at the end of the bench than to try to be bothering the star for it just what is what does this mean what does that mean type of type of stuff yeah it makes total sense pro you asleep still got you <laughs> <laughs> i'll let you two fucking dynamos go at it you know what i'm saying <laughs> well i was gonna say it was also i didn't feel guilty about it if it was a fringe end of bench guy because you got to assess how people are playing and nobody's going to give you shit for saying that the 15th man or if it's Justin Holiday or whatever, like you're not, you're not really, uh, you're not really holding his feet to the fire and telling him to step up. Um, so to my mind, it was a way to almost get a little bit of uh, insight without having to compromise on the other side of things uh, where you talk about a guy who's involved. I mean, Draymond's somebody I've had my ups and downs with, but it was all ups at the beginning, but he became such an important person for that team that if you talk about him and it's a way he doesn't like, he's going to see it and then it can kind of go a little bit sour, even though I think I'm I'm cordial with him these days as again, it happens. But yeah, so that was another reason why I wanted to, wanted to target the fringes. Well, let's be honest though, like with the player's animosity towards the media in some cases, not a lot of media people are sort of straight up, you know, well, two things. Yeah. First of all, like, first of all, a lot of media is not straight up and they'll use anything that the players said and twist it, and, you know, just so they get more clicks. People, you know, so like there's not a lot of people to actually be trusted. And that's the first thing. And, and that's, that is a true deal. But the second thing is the NBA players, though, they're a little bit like in La La Land as far as everything has to be going their way. You, they don't understand that you have to report actually what you see and you have to evaluate what they do on a night-to-night basis. And sometimes it's not going to be all good and they're not used to that. The fringe guys are, the rotation players are, you know, but a lot of the stars aren't used to that. What do you think about some of that? I think that's true, but there's another element where maybe they see it clearer than even we see it because they often see it in this very cynical, hey, man, I help you, you help me. That's what this is. I mean, that was something that KD would complain about where it's just why is why is Ethan you know, trying to be this detriment, like we can all rise together. Uh, that was something that he would hit upon. And um, they might view it more realistically because there are these instances of media people attaching themselves to players, never saying a bad word about the player, and then just riding them like a rocket ship um, and getting on TV and becoming bigger, bigger media <coughs> CIA, presence. So- CIA clients. <coughs> Yep. Keep going. (laughs) Yeah, maybe a little (laughs) bit of that. Maybe a little bit of that. That's a whole topic that we could discuss as well, potentially, (laughs) if I never want to work in this town again. But um, so sometimes their cynicism is a little bit accurate. But I also agree that 
some of these guys don't have the most realistic sense of uh, what the discussion is of them or what the discussion should be of them. And in a weird way, it can get very personal um, on their side. But on my side, it doesn't get that personal because they can be killing me and they can be talking all this shit about me. But ultimately, the thing they're mad about is what I'm saying about them. They don't even know all of my faults and flaws beyond, I don't know how shitty and awkward I am conversationally or, or whatever. I, I don't know, but it's not very, so that's, it's this weird, completely skewed dynamic in that way. And a lot of that is also, they could probably roast you a lot better if they took any interest in you. And with these guys, they, they got too much going on to really do that. There's not a whole lot of, Hey, how you doing? How was your weekend? There aren't many players. Let's be honest. That actually, you could actually be truthful 100% with and evaluate them 100% with no bias because it's just, it's a hard thing. Uh, you know, even with the hundreds of players, thousands of players that I've worked with, like there's only a select few that you could actually be honest with them. And then, you know, when it's not going their way or you're, you're being not negative, but you're being something that's not 100% positive in their direction and, and trending up. And they could just say, you know what? You're right. I may not agree with it, but okay, I, I got you. And that's or, just the or, world they live in. Or even just to have it out in a reasonable way. I've heard that about John Wall, where when he's criticized by media people, he'll have a very reasonable discussion with them. It won't be defensive. He won't be cursing at them. He'll go, well, here's what I think, but, 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 but. And the media in DC appreciates that, that they can just have a reasonable conversation about it. That is not how it usually goes behind the scenes. Behind the scenes, you usually leave the interaction and your hair is on fire. Um, it, it's, it's, that's, that's, that tends to be how it goes. And there's not much, I guess, downside from the player's perspective because you can intimidate media people away from criticizing you. Um, but I do wonder uh, why players issue just kind of glad handing because it works so well. I mean, Jamal Crawford, uh, yeah, he won six man of the year all those times in part because of his great offensive play. But a big other aspect of it is that he was just so nice to media and would remember everybody's name and would come up to them. I mean, the th you would gain so much as an NBA player in a rotation if whenever the media walked in, you just address them by their name. Because a lot of the people in media, let's face it, they're nerds. You could call them jock sniffers at some level. Um, and when a famous pro athlete even just says their name and acknowledges them like that, they're going to drop their guard down and that guy is just going to become their favorite guy. You see it. Coaches are savvier about it in my experience. I mean, Doc Rivers likes to say the name of the reporter before he answers their question. And I just would love in pregame. Clippers pregame when he was coaching the Clippers, just watching the reporter's face because I could just see it transform and the heart flutter when he says the name and he says, like, you know, it's a great, it's a great question. It's a great question, Andrew. It's like, oh, Doc Rivers thinks that I asked a great question. And it was all part of a cynical media strategy, but there's a respect in that. If somebody is even bullshitting you in order to get on your good side, that is a conveyance of respect that they would even think to do that. And people appreciate that kind of thing. Well, a couple of things, a Jamal Crawford, like him, not like his game, what, ha what have you, the guy's a complete pro, you know, like he, he just knows how to be a pro. Now you, one would say maybe he's bullshitting people. Maybe he's not. I've dealt with him a, a bunch of times. I like him. 
I think he's like, he understands the Everybody game. It's, yeah, it's not just one way with him. It's, you know, he, he understands people's names. You know, he's got this whole thing where he's a pro, you know, regardless of what he puts up at night, you know, talking to people, coachable, you know, like just good with teammates. The guy's a pro and, 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 that, and that sort of carries, a, you know, a lot of weight. And I think the name thing with pro, like especially young players, like when I was in Dallas, our big thing with young players, Don Coxstein, the, the director of sports psychology and myself, we would make our young guys memorize everybody's name that was in our travel party. You know, and that, that includes the five or six media people that travel with the team playing. And I think that that goes a long way with a lot of players. You see, they don't take the time to know anyone's names. It, again, it's all one way. They don't understand that that shit could take you a big way. Like, like Bogues would talk about, um, in, in previous pods about the awards, you know, how the media has a huge part about bonuses that you get because of like what teams you get voted onto. And they don't understand that, like, Actually knowing media people's names, not everybody, you're not going to know, you know, the Tacoma press, but you might, you should know the beat writers that are covering your team and look them in the eye and, and just sort of have a cordial relationship. And I think that could go a long way. I agree. And it doesn't mean you're a great guy just because you're being no. great to media. Fuck it can no. even be uh, negatively correlated. This is just professional advice because everybody likes good coverage. Everybody Acts like they don't, but they do. They like good coverage. They like when in the local paper or the tweets or whatever, good things are being said about them. And you increase the odds of that happening when you treat media a certain way. Many people listening might say, hey, that's not fair. That's bullshit. That's not objective. But that's the world. That's how it works. That's how it goes. So it, it, it was always so strange to me that more guys didn't immediately grasp that when they clearly were so invested and what their media reputation was. Yeah, and you could be completely bullish. bullish. I mean, a human being, right? Yeah. It's a human element. It's a human being. I mean, it goes in all walks of life. It's the same thing. You treat the media as media, quote unquote, then you're going to get different rapport with them. Then you treat them like, like a person, like treat them like Ethan or whoever it is. And the only name that Pro ever remembered on the NBA circuit was the team chef. So I don't know what the hell Pro is talking about. <laughs> no question. Yeah. I saw that coming. Hey, Ed, Eduardo was a beautiful human being. Just let me just let tell you the guy. All right, let's, let's move on. Let's get into the playoffs real quick. I know, Ethan, you haven't followed all the series. Pro and I have for the best part. We um, pride ourselves on not being correct on any of our picks, and that's how we'll start this first one off, <laughs> Miami versus Milwaukee. Milwaukee Woo! have swept this series. Woo. We both picked Miami. <laughs> so that shows you how, how analytical we are. But man, what a series. Um, Jimmy and Bam shot pretty much horribly throughout the series. Bam salvaged it a little the last two games, but he shot at 46%. Jimmy Butler shot under 30% for the series, um, 26% from three. Um, he had, you know, he filled stats up a little bit with rebounds. I think it was 14, 7, and 7 for the series. But obviously, that was a huge, huge elephant in the room for this series. Jimmy just couldn't get it going. Rumors of being, him being banged up coming to that series. Not sure how far that goes. But Miami just looks so clunky. Um, no flow offensively, even with those scorers, Dragic and 
Duncan Robinson and those guys, it just looked very everything they had to work hard for. Whereas Milwaukee, it just flowed with ease, which you don't usually hear about a Giannis-led team in the playoffs. You know, we we we've historically seen Giannis get bogged down with guys loading the paint and he'll struggle to, to shoot that jumper. But man, they they looked really, really good, in my opinion. They um did much better than I thought. I thought it'd at least be a series. I thought Miami would win it, but you know, what have what have you guys seen in that series? The one big thing for me that bothered me is the player Jimmy Butler and and forget like some guys are going to struggle in series and that's that's natural that's that's normal in in some respects but it seemed like he wasn't engaged at all in the game you know especially in games one through three you know they had the chance to um to win the game in game one you know they, it was a lot closer but game two game three were complete blowouts and then today they sort of fought a little bit but they lost it. I, I worry about what his sort of framework was, his mental state, you know, because he's a warrior. Like it, you're talking about the toughest guys in the league as far as like mentality. He's probably top, top five, uh, top 10 tops, you know, at worst he's top 10. And he just seemed like Bogues, like he wasn't looking to shoot. He wasn't looking to score. You know, he shot the ball 16 times a game. I understand that, but like he just didn't, just seemed like he just wanted to pass the ball and like wasn't really getting upset with referees. Maybe that's just his mindset and mentality of the game. Like Kobe was like that where he sometimes he was expressionless. You know, he just he just just like was so focused in the game and the task at hand. But that was the one thing I was worried about because it wasn't engaged. You know, I, I don't know what the deal was with him. And- Remember we spoke about before this series started. There was a report by Shams that came out and said, you know, Jimmy's disgruntled. There's been an issue, I believe it was with the coaching staff. And Jimmy's agent went off his rocker on Twitter and added Shams and basically called him every name under the sun. So, you know, who who knows what's going on? I mean, it's just funny that this series ended up going the way it did and Jimmy played poorly. And here we are being those media guys probably overlooking things. But there was was some smoke um, before that series. Yeah, and I apologize for taking Miami, by the way. That fucked them from the first. <laughs> but I'm sorry, Ethan. Go ahead. No, no. I, was saying, I thought it was a bold call. I like that you guys made it. I, I thought the Bucks were going to win it. I'm already moving on. Uh, sorry to interrupt the autopsy. I'm just, I'm worried for the Bucks with DiVincenzo uh, being out for the being yeah. out for the playoffs. Yeah, I uh, because they're not a deep team. And it really seemed like, and the series was evidence of it, that they might have been actually coalescing into a real title. I don't want to say title threat because they were a title threat before, but they were a little bit of a paper tiger. And it was revealing itself multiple times that they just didn't have enough nuance in their attack to really uh, get to the finals, win a finals. And I was all gearing up. I know it hasn't become official yet, but I want to see that Nets buck series so bad and now i'm just worrying about what they're going to do to replace his minutes uh because they were subtly leaning on him a a whole lot and uh, i just hope that they can i hope that they can rise to the occasion and make a series of it should they face the nets yeah it's uh, i i agree I, i think they they um you know, hit on the head, Ethan. They, they, we, we've discussed it before. They loaded up on their starting unit by bringing Drew Holiday in. Massive upgrade, in our opinion, to to Bledslow. But the bench has suffered, and and they're a fine line. And they're always one or two injuries away from like, holy shit, what do we do? And 
this is one of those situations. You know, God forbid they get another injury. They're, they're f- you know, f- starting five, probably their top six, seven rotation are all going to be playing, you know, in the 30s, if not 40s. So there is some concerns there with just longevity of can they can they do this? So, I mean, it's a space that we'll definitely be watching. Yeah, uh, guys like Pat Connaughton is going to have to step up a lot more than, than he usually does and, you know, to sort of replace the, the minutes that the big ragu is going to, uh, you know, that was going to play, but it, it's tough. I mean... You know, not that he's not that he's challenging Will Chamberlain or anything with his whopping two point seven points a game he averaged, but the big ragu is a tough kid. He plays hot and you know, and, and Connaughton's a tough kid. He's a scrappy kid. And I think that they're gonna have to lean on him a little bit more, you know. And, and this is like when players think about their true value, when you have to step up and be ready in the playoffs and your role has to go up a little bit, I think that's a great evaluation point to see how players really are. And, and it, I'm looking forward to sort of see the challenge of some of their role players and deeper rotation players having to step up. So yeah, and Portis has Portis has see. Portis has stepped up this playoffs. I mean, he was kind of he was struggling through different periods of the season, but he's I felt like he had a decent series to get back on track, and he'll be he'll be huge from off the bench. Let's move on to Brooklyn and Boston. Boston fought back last night. It's two one Brooklyn. I mean, I don't see Boston. Maybe they get another game. Um, but the Brooklyn luxury of having those three guys we've spoken about at length, they still get bogged down defensively. Um, I think they they still have some some warts they need to figure out defensively. And um, I liked the game yesterday. We spoke about Marcus Smart being a huge, you know, third wheel for them, fourth wheel for them to to win to win them game in the playoffs. And he was he junked the game up. He was holding. He was grabbing. He was flopping. He was doing everything he could to try and piss off KD, and that helped on that end. And then Tatum obviously dropping fifty is a is a big plus. But I mean, I don't see Boston. Maybe they get one more game, but I don't, I don't see it going much further than that. But I mean, Brooklyn, I have some concerns mainly just around their their defense. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's the obvious thing, right? I mean, you know, the offense is going to be cooking most of the time, but, you know, and Joe Harris could give him a little bit more of a spark too as a fourth option. But, you know, I, I think that – I think they're going to bulldoze through the series. I think Boston sort of put up a great, you know, a great fight last game. Maybe they could play him tough uh, again tomorrow, but I don't really see them doing much more than that. And, and I agree with your point about Marcus Smart. Like, you saw that in the Dallas series with, like, Morris and – Rondo and guys like Beverly, like that yuck the game up, that piss you off, that, you know, cheap shot you a little bit and, and just sort of like get you going a little bit and get you sort of unfocused on the task at hand. And, you know, he's big for them. I just don't think they have enough weapons without Brown. I mean, Smart could sort of score a little bit more and Fournier could score and, you know, Kemba, you know, doesn't look great so far, but I, I just don't think they have enough. And, um, you know, Brooklyn's, look, they haven't played together. That's sort of the, a story that you hear from five million people, and and that's true. And I think the more and more they play and get used to it, and they go round by round, and I think they're going to get better at this. But you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens. What do you think, Ethan? Yeah, one of the reasons why that perspective Bucks Net series is so exciting is it's that that offensive strength versus defensive strength dynamic, and it, it was it was interesting. It seemed like I don't want to start any more drama with with KD, but Uh-oh. in the beginning to get going, Tatum, well, I'm just saying in the beginning to get going, Tatum was just really going at him on a few plays, and it just seemed like I couldn't tell if hey, this game isn't the most meaningful game, even though it's a playoff game because we got this series. Um, or maybe he has 
you know, is some vulnerability from the Achilles and the healing process. But on a few of those plays, it just seemed like he gave up or just, you know, do what you want to do. There was one in transition where uh, I think Tatum hit a three and it was a situation where, where KD just kind of stopped during the play. And I don't know if that's something that's going to manifest itself later on in the playoffs, but that definitely, as a professional Kevin Durant antagonizer, I guess, accidentally, of course, uh, it's something that caught my eye and it made me wonder. Yeah, well, I think I think that's Brooklyn during the regular season. They 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 feel like they can at times not have to bring it defensively because we can go down that other end. We got three Hall of Famers that can get us a bucket whenever we need be. So they've had that luxury to be able to coast through defensive possessions, and and you know they're not as meaningful as they need to be. Whereas you've hit it on the head. You get deeper in the playoffs, and you're playing better and better opponents. You're going to have to knuckle down and get stops at some point in the playoffs. Like You can't just rely on Kyrie bailing you out, James, or KD. You're going to have to actually get stops. So I'm, I'm interested to see how that goes further in the playoffs. As we said, in this Boston series, it is what it is. They're going to, they're going to win this series. I think that there wouldn't be anyone out there betting against that. But there is, there is just some concerns where can you just flick that switch in a conference finals? Like, all right, let's buy in defensively now when you haven't really done it all season. Yeah, I think it's a tough thing right? if you're not really used to doing it. I mean, those guys can go on experience, um, and they can go on just, you know, they've been, they've been pretty deep in the playoffs before and they could sort of understand it. I just don't think they have much of a lockdown mentality, any of those guys. So that's, that's probably going to be the biggest hurdle that they face and they're going to face it at some point. <laughs> They'll face it. There's a great play from that game that I'm thinking about it of like Kyrie got matched up on on Tatum, I think, in the fourth quarter. And it was just total blow by. And then Harden had the rotation as the rim protector at the rim. <laughs> and Harden just kind of he almost deliberately just jumped like a like a 180 out of the way, like whatever you could do to provide the least amount of resistance in the situation. And it, it, it's a great question right now, because there are guys uh, who you see them play bad defense in the regular season and it's really a focus thing. They're not just untalented on defense. They can do it theoretically. And I, I just don't know what to expect with, with a few of these Brooklyn guys where I just don't know if when it actually matters and they're, you know, many man, many hands makes the work light. That's the phrase I'm thinking about. Offensively, many hands makes the work light. So they what can't fucking for, hey, What fucking fortune cookie did he read that out of today? <laughs> I just want to know. It was a, an evolutionary biologist at Stanford, I think, who said it once in a lecture. And <laughs> Jesus <laughs> Christ, what the fuck? Or... Uh, <laughs> trying to remember the guy's name but um now it sounds very pretentious uh actually i don't even know if he was that it was uh it was robert sapolsky he probably he, he has some other fancy job that i don't know but he's got great he's got great lectures and they're all on youtube and you can you know watch them and feel smarter than you are which is what i was trying to do with them but yeah many hands makes the work light so in theory they should be conserving their energy on offense uh harden and Kyrie, and have that fire for the defensive end but i don't I don't know. You know, we would say at the end of these seasons where the Rockets would flame out that Harden was just spent. Uh, is this a situation where we're going to see him fired up and really engaged? I, I I don't know, but it's one of the reasons why I want to watch. I agree. And funnily enough, I just realized I ran over the Philly-Washington series and skipped that on the run sheet. And it is fitting because this, this is pretty much a... We'll replace that with Kwame Brown talk. That's, 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 <laughs> will, will, Washington, will Washington get game four? Will they get one game in this series? 
Nah, fu- I don't think. I don't think so. No, I think. I mean, Russ will get a triple-double, but one thing I've noticed, this what I like about Philly is they have a defensive juggernaut lineup. Now, everyone will talk about Ben Simmons and the shooting and Matisse Thibel, but you put Ben out there, Matisse Thibel, Danny Green, I think is a very, very good defender for a spot-up three-point shooter. Joel, that's a a really tough lineup to score on. They're very, very long. They can recover to things that they probably shouldn't most teams probably can't just because of their length and I think they could they could potentially make some noise in the playoffs deep I, I really do I think they could they could give Brooklyn a run for their money if they happen to meet it all hinges on Joel Embiid for me offensively and that's that's the thing I want to see if they end up playing Brooklyn is what do Brooklyn do with him you know you've got DeAndre there as your insurance policy and whatnot but Steve I mean Steve Nash doesn't like going big for most of the game he likes having Jeff Green at that five spot a lot of the time so I'm interested to see how that goes down the track but as far as the series goes I would agree I think the brooms are coming out for that one as well right yeah that's that's uh yeah that that one is a foregone conclusion I have a very caveman observation about the Sixers defense not only are they long but they're big they're just nasty man I, I saw them take apart the Warriors earlier in the season and I mean it's just it's a physically imposing defense and maybe they're not getting enough credit because perhaps to your lament Andrew uh, we just don't give defense the credit we give offense just we don't even though it's half the game and people make up their rationalizations for it they make up their justifications for it but I know Mark Jackson will say great offense beats great defense I just don't think that's true I think we just like it better so we talk about offense more prettier it's definitely prettier that's what the fans want to watch and that's why we've seen these rule changes the last 10-15 years which do my head in people want to see the pretty play that i want to see the the grinded out holding that was done in the 90s and 2000s to get stops so that's an argument for another day atlanta new york i have this game going seven in my opinion if not six um i did pick new york it is two one for atlanta um, it's one of the closest series i think we'll see in the first round um, that in denver portland in my opinion uh, and possibly the Clippers Dallas, but Atlanta, New York, really a really grindy, clunky series. Like, uh, but both the game, but all three games really um, have had runs by numerous teams where they just go completely dry offensively. And I don't think it's anything different the defense is doing. They just go through lulls, and then the same thing with New York, same thing with Atlanta. It just goes three or four minute spurts of a, of a nine two run, and then it flips. And New York struggling um, has come down to Randall's just had a, had an awful series so far. He's had a hell of a year, but just can't get it going offensively. So um, I believe. I picked New York in this one. Atlanta was pro. Where do you guys see this at right now? You know, Julius Randle has to sort of uh, – this is great for his development because he, he's not really used to being in the playoffs a lot, you know, in his career up to this point. And being carry, trying to carry a team is, is really good for him. Now, he's not playing well, but he's – if they have any chance, they can't survive on Derrick Rose scoring 25 a game. They, he needs to get easy baskets. He needs to be aggressive. Hey, he's getting 12 rebounds a night. That's great. You know, it's awesome to see Trey Young to see what he's, you know, I mean, the kid, like him, hate him, whatever you want to say about the kid. He does compete and he does, you know, he does go hard as hell and he's a tough defender. He's a tough guy to God. And, you know, he gets in the paint, he shoots his floater. He can, you know, he makes shots in the mid range. You know, he, he gets in transition. He can make plays for other guys. Bogdanovich has played well. I'm, I'm a big DeAndre Hunter fan, but, um, no, I think I'm I'm with you. I think this this will go about six, at least six, if not seven. Um, you know, it's it's been fun to watch. 
Yeah, I think I'm more on the Atlanta side. And in fact, when I was listening to the podcast, I wanted Pro to defend his pick a little bit more so. But I mean, he's just an abused puppy right now with the way some of these picks have worked out, and he's not no, having it, confidence. I got no fucking confidence, and and I tell that you know, I, you know, I'm not here peddling fucking one dollar a month subscriptions. I'm actually telling the fucking truth. Yeah, it's yeah. okay. My not, picks, my picks have gone similarly in the athletic, and it's endlessly frustrating to me that I even have to make picks because I want to do the Seinfeld. I choose not to run after the Warriors 2015 uh, title prediction. I don't want to be revealed for the fraud that I am. But uh, and for one dollar like- a month, you too <laughs> could get uh, could get. Yeah, fortune. A negative wisdom. indicator. A negative yes. indicator to bet against. Um, I like Atlanta. Uh, more playmakers. Uh, I I do love this series, though. I don't know if it's going to go seven. Um, and even if I'm more so on the hawk side of things, uh, it is. I mean, it's just a series with some juice, man. It's one of the more enjoyable ones. Even and I like those Eastern Conference 1990s type of scores and slow down when it gets bogged down like that. That's when it feels meaningful. That's when it feels like a, a basket is almost like an NFL touchdown. So I mean, maybe if you're making the case for the Knicks, you think that Randall is going to course correct and he just needs to get his sea legs in the in the playoffs but this is this is very set of TNT right here uh Trey Young is the best player in the series and I don't even think it's by a little um and I know you hear sometimes that guys don't like to play with him they don't love to play with him and when the Hawks were doing worse last season you heard little grumblings and rumblings about it but whether you like to play with him or not uh man and man, is he good. And man, do they need him. Um, and he's. this has just been a coming out party for him. It's very exciting. And this is going to be big, too, for the Knicks, I think, in free agency to sort of make this push in the playoffs, even if they don't win. But if they can push it to game seven, get more excitement about the Knicks. Because let's be honest, the last, you know, last decade or so, they've struck out free agency time and time again. They got a coach now. They got some young players that are decent. Nothing great on their roster, but, you know, look, they're, they're a team that could compete with, you know, most of the league. You know, again, they're not a great team, but they can compete. They got a great coach and they're prepared. Now, if you can make a push, you could see, you know, people could see on national TV that, hey, look, there is some excitement. They're pushing people to the limit. You know, maybe they can get a free agent or someone who wants to go there. Nothing great yet, but at least it's it's a good way to set the table. Yeah, they don't have to rely so much on the 2010 Bulls uh, going forward is the hope for them. <laughs> Absolutely. What's the issue there, Ethan? Is it as simple as Dolan? Why why will no one sign in New York? Like it's 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 a untapped market for the last ten years for superstars. No just no one wants to sign oh, it. It's a dormant Mount Vesuvius, man. It's uh you see you see those crazy crowds outside Madison Square Garden when they win one playoff game. If they ever become good, my god I mean, I, I put it this way. Imagine if these rosters were reversed and Trey Young was on the Knicks, how crazy the city would be going. Um, So it's a big opportunity if you can turn it around, but ownership – uh, that's that's a real thing. And if you've got a guy who's not very good, uh, the fish rots from the head. I think everybody knows that by now. Uh, people don't want to entrust their career to the Knicks. There's just a lot of bitterness and resentment uh, that run, run through that organization. And so I think it's pretty simple. I'm trying to say something smarter than what you said about it, but it really just comes down to Dolan, and that's the reason. Well, I think, too, they're not really competitive. I mean, I think – Either you're a great destination town, which obviously New York is, you know, it's been, 
But if you're not competitive, what fucking free agent? Like, remember the year they had all that money for D. Wade, LeBron, and they got Amari Stoudemire on, a, on one leg, you know, and they gave him a max contract. Like, you know, their mismanagement of the cap, some of the fucking jokes that they've hired in the past to run their team as well as coach their team. Now they sort of clean that up. I think Leon Rose is, you know, doing a good job so far early in, in his career there. And yeah, they got Tibbs and now they just need they need to put themselves in a position to get a great player. Unfortunately, it's not going to be in the draft because they're in the middle. By the way, they've also got Darren Ehrman, which you guys make uh, many uh, reference to on this particular podcast. You got to get Erm on the pod, man. I mean, we I do. feel like it'd be a joke. I mean, he'll have all the recording there. equipment ready, so we won't need that. <laughs> there you go. There you go. There you go. <laughs> I guy. knew it was you, Fredo. Fredo, I knew it was you. <laughs> yeah, Erm's my guy. He's. Uh, I hated that dude when I first got to Golden State because he is one level. It's full. It's he's six Red Bulls. That's that's him. Yeah. His personality, right? So Intense. I thought it was like. I thought it was fake hustle when I first got there. I'm like, look at this idiot, like screaming and yelling while he's running on the treadmill and always, you know, this little small man syndrome. But that's him. I ended up growing to like him and he does really work hard and know the game. I think he got a bit of a bad rap with, look, you never want to record your bosses <laughs> no matter the circumstances. But oh, It depends on the boss, folks. It depends <laughs> on the boss. It does. It does. <laughs> yeah, it but, does. That was but uh, I'll tell you what, though. Every player that worked with that fucking guy loved him. That I knew, that I talked to, and they they didn't they may not have loved him as a guy all the time, but they always said that the guy's prepared. Anytime you ask him a question about something, he had an answer for it. He'll look you in the eye and they'll do that. And he's you know he just knows what he's talking about. And I yeah, think somebody. Good. I sir. I, I I no 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 no. You go. I shouldn't have. I I, I love the East Coast Northeast Boston. Go ahead, but yeah, I want to complete your thought. I didn't mean to jump in. No, no. Are you going to come up with there's nothing to fear but fear itself cliche or what are you going to come up with? <laughs> hey, man. Hey, many hands makes the work light is a damn good quote, number yeah. one. And uh, n- number two, I, I didn't have any. Hey, who the fuck said that? Low pan on Big, big Trouble in Little China? <laughs> um, I was just going to say that Ehrman, I think, is somebody who was very important to Clay Thompson's uh, early development as a defensive player by all reputation. Maybe Andrew knows a little more about that i don't know so important i think in warriors lore and somebody who i saw at the g league winner showcase in 2019 one of the last things i did uh before coronavirus uh hit because it was right around uh the new year and he was he was in the g league and so it's nice it's nice i mean this is the type of podcast where we can talk about guys on the uh either it's backbench or maybe not the coach himself yeah you know a little darren Ehrman segment i like it well i'll give you this Without throwing anyone under the bus, if Darren Ehrman wasn't on that Warriors team, our scouting reports would have been done in Microsoft Paint. So let's just leave that at that. So he he did a fantastic job for us. And I think he was highly valued by everyone there, including the head coach. It just ended up going in the wrong direction. But anyway, let's move on to the Western Conference. Now, this joke didn't even get a laugh from Pro, but I have the Portland versus Enver series. I've left the D out for obvious reasons because there is absolutely no defense. Pro gave me... No giggles, no LOL, none of that shit in the group chat for it. So I don't appreciate that very much. But there was some defense was today. Hey. There was some defense today, Pro. The, they kept <laughs> Portland kept Denver under a hundred. <laughs> I think it's the first time they've kept anyone under a under a hundred since the the jailbreakers were playing in Portland. But uh, no defense in this series. Jokic has been phenomenal. Had a bit of a stinker today. It's two two. I think this one has a real good potential to go seven. Yeah, first of all, that joke was as good as fucking Larry Drew coaching the fucking Cleveland Cavaliers, <laughs> but that was just my own opinion. Um, 
I agree. Like this series, somebody's going to have to make stops for the series to go. Um, Mike Malone, Michael Malone. I'm sorry, Michael Malone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Watch was out on that. Very. Yeah, yeah. My fault. My fault. Was very. He was he was very hard on his team today as far as the post games go and and Michael if you know him is that's the type of coach he is he's a you know he, he tells you the truth and he he you could tell there's a lot of lack of effort in today's in today's performance that he wasn't happy with and let's be honest like you know you you got McCollum coming at you you got you know you got Dame Lillard coming at you. You got to step up, you know, Norman Powell, those guys come at you and you got to make that second effort defensively a little bit. And, you know, they have guys like, you know, Aaron Gordon didn't really give him much. Michael, Michael Porter didn't give him much. I mean, you know, this is the time when you want to make a name for yourself. And look, Jokic can't carry it for 38 every fucking night. And these guys who sort of complain out of the other side of their mouth about they need more of a role. Those guys got to step up in games like this. If you want to be taken serious as a free agent, as somebody in this league that could be a potential all-star down the road, you got to have to step up in games like this. And they weren't ready to do it today. And, you know, it, it showed. And I'll tell you what, Portland, they may not defend anybody, but fuck. Can they, you know, those guys could, those guys could light you up a little bit. And Dame, Dame Lillard had 10 points in this game. He was one for 10. He had 10, 8, and 10, 10 assists, and they won by 20. That is, that's a bit of an alarming stat in my opinion because usually they go as far as Dame takes them, but then you have Norman Powell with 29, McCullum with 21, really balanced Carmelo off the bench with 12. A pretty alarming stat when I saw that. I thought Dame probably dropped 50, but it goes to show that your superstar doesn't always have to take the scoring load, Ethan. Yeah, I mean, that's an amazing stat. And uh, Malone wasn't just mad in postgame. He was mad, I think, from the first quarter, whenever that interview was at the beginning. He was already killing his team's effort. So I guess it was it was apparent from there. I mean, he was so mad. It was, it was like somebody called him uh, Mike, which apparently gets under his skin. Uh, and uh, it, was, it was an issue there, one of those interviews, if I'm trying to recall correctly. Um, yeah, I mean, this series, I'm not sure would be close. I mean, here's a question. If Murray was there, would the series be close? Would the series be close in your opinion? I think it would still, just because I, I think um, Murray's Murray's just so hot and cold, in my opinion. Um, I think he can, you know, have fifty one night and then have eight and go, you know, two for two for sixteen. So I think it still would have went six at least. Um, I probably would have been more in the Denver camp though. But I, I think it's a pretty even match series, and and just the. I think that acquisition of, of Norman Powell, we spoke about it at length, the pod, that that'd be a great pickup for a Boston back before he got traded. He's he's a phenomenal scorer, really grown as an NBA player, and I think that's been the acquisition of the pre-playoffs, in my opinion. I would agree with all that. Also, are you guys watching, are, are you guys cheating a little bit and watching sure, Jazz yeah. Grizzlies as we record this podcast? Yes, and they're, they're next, so I'm actually pushing them to last now on our rundown, so hopefully this game will finish the minute 30 left on it, so we'll get to that shortly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. I'm just watching watching Donovan Mitchell explode through, uh, through a trap right there. Pretty good, but go back to the show. Go back to the show. <laughs> ADD. It's my play by play. My genius play by play. Usually it's pro, like about to go out the door because he just saw a McDonald's commercial, but now it's you watching uh, (laughs) watching NBA games. (laughs) You fucking cocky, non lisping fuck you. (laughs) Can I say that one of the reasons I love this podcast, or the many reasons, is that. Just the combination of accents is is what I'm here for. That I've got the the Boston Townie accent. 
And I've got the Australian accent. There, there are R's getting dropped left and right on this podcast, and I, I truly enjoy it. I'm fucking believable. So, so you guys, who, who do you guys have in this series? I have, I, I've picked Portland. I'm staying with Portland. It's two two. Uh, Denver. Yeah, I'll stick with Denver. Yeah, I think that was my original pick. I'm sorry, Denver, but you know, had to do it. Apologize. <laughs> We'll see how that one goes. I, I'm, I think it's been a good series, so I'll continue to watch that one closely. Clippers and Dallas. Now this one, I thought the Clippers were done. Um, Pro and I, I think all of us in that group chat were texting in the first quarter. Clippers made no adjustments from game one or two. Luca was coming, dribbling down the court, doing whatever he wanted. Porzingis was getting open layups and dunks. They, they were getting everything and anything they wanted early in that game. I thought they were done, but... Credit to the Clippers. They fought back. I mean, look, at the end of the day, they have elite talent on that team that can get you back in the game. And what was interesting to me was the script completely flipped. Dallas was smooth sailing in that first quarter. Everything was free-flowing, rolling, easy, kind of momentum was all there. Then that completely flipped. And then by the fourth quarter, everything was clunky for Dallas. If Luka wasn't creating, they couldn't get anything done. And the Clippers were getting whatever they wanted. At one point, they hit, I mean, how many corner threes are you going to give to Morris late in a game? He hit three in a row from the same spot with their rotations, no adjustments. So this series has been interesting. Um, there hasn't been a whole lot of adjustments on either side. And can the Clippers get game four and make this a series? Look, they the Clippers spend more money on their fucking assistant coaches than the United States <laughs> spends on fucking defense. <laughs> and okay? GMs. One fucking guy, one guy say, hey, it might be a good idea to put fucking double team fucking Luka Doncic to get the ball out of his hands and force one of those four other guys to make a play. I mean, I mean, it, it's just, you know, poor fucking Kuzma. He reminds me of fresh fish from fucking Zubats, Shawshank Zubats. Redemption. Zubats. Zubach, my fault, my fault. Zubach looks like fucking fresh fish from fucking Shawshank Redemption every time they got to switch on a Luka. And it's, it's just, it's unbelievable to me. Look, I wouldn't know an X for an O if they fucking just, if they hit me over the fucking head. But I mean, get the ball out of his hands. Look, Dallas has been great. They've been game plan the first two games. They were great. They were great opening up the game. They fought with it. You know, they just sort of know, you know, they got Luca. They got four of the guys that play around it. You know, Tim Hardaway Jr. has been good. But, you know, I think what they did, I think, you know, they made it a little bit tougher on Luca. They, you know, they were cheap shot in a little bit. That's why you have a Morris, a Beverly, uh, a Rondo to sort of yuck the game up a little bit and fuck with people. And it, it worked and they, they sort of got out of their element a little bit. But I mean, God damn, like, and, you know, the Clippers finally figured out, put Porzingis in pick and roll and just go at him. I think they, they were both having a contest, him and Zubac, who's going to give up more points on the de- defensive end. And they just sort of went at it. And, Hey, look, you know, I'm not taking anything away from Dallas. They've had a, a great series. They're still in, uh, they, they're still in very much command. Now with Luca, though, being, you know, they're saying he's questionable for, I would say he'd play if I'd had a guess, but you know, like, I just unbelievable to me that they haven't made one adjustment on Luca in the first three games. Like, you know, that switch and shit don't work. Why don't you get through screens? Those screens aren't great. And like, why not fight through the screen? You got two of the best defensive wings in the league. Why not fucking just go through the screen and not switch that? I mean, the first 29 times, you might want to say, hey, you know, my fucking, my three-year-old son was like, hey, daddy, you think they want to switch? I'm like, yeah, you, you know what, Frankie, you might be right. But well, the, the other it, thing was, is, it was crazy. The other thing is, probably like, it's, it's if you want to go one through five switching, Zubats isn't your starting five, man. It's it's clear he's not a, he's he's kind of more, more useful to be in that drops 
you know, maybe a quick blitz, pack the paint, rebound, protect the rim. If you want to go to that one through five a la Warriors, you got you have to have Draymond Green at the five. You have to have – you can't have myself or Zaza or Javel at the five. It's the same with the Clippers. So I think not only is it not Zubats' strength, you're then putting – Zubats on Luca one-on-one saying, hey, big fella, get us a stop when Kawhi Leonard can't even get a stop against this kid. I mean, and and now Zubats looks worse than he actually is in pick and rolls because he's put, he's, he's basically put on an island. So, I mean, my th- my whole thing is if you want to go one through five switching to start the game, you got to start Morris at the five and not to pat myself on the back, but that's why I thought Sergi Bucker was a huge, huge kind of presence for this series because he can shoot the three ball. He can switch one through five. He's an elite shot blocker, but he's banged up and not not even really in the rotation, not even playing. His back's messed up. So it's just a strange one to me. I think Luca's the scariest guy in any series in, in the league right now. With LeBron being hurt, I mean, you know, this kid is the scariest kid in any series because he could he could just create what he creates. Now, look, Dorian Finney-Smith had a tough game last game. You know, you know, I think Maxi Kleber had a tough t- uh, time defensively, you know, trying to guard, you know, Kawhi and, you know, on certain situations. But like, I, you know, Tim Hardaway Jr., they sort of got them out of their rhythm a little bit. And then when they subbed out Luca, you know, early in the first quarter, I think that's that's when sort of things went downhill a little bit. And then so they got it back and then Clippers finally, hey, like Kawhi Leonard and fucking Paul George had unbelievable games. And I just thought that they played well and they kept on, you know, they kept the pressure on a little bit. But like, I'm just surprised that they're not doubling, you know, for, and that, no, he'll get the ball back. They'll pitch it back to him. But now you're talking about eight, nine on the clock and maybe force him into doing some other things rather than having the ball, getting that switch and just like fucking, you know, poor Zubach, man. Just fucking, you know, poor prick. I just, I, I, I just want to know what their thinking is behind what they're doing. Um, I, and I'm a little distracted as I try to think it through because it just occurred to me that Bogut was so defensive on behalf of his uh, Croat brother and the situation they're putting him in uh, with the strategy right there, which is very amusing to me. But additionally, I mean, I think about you made a great point that these guys should be well suited to get around screens, especially somebody like Paul George, where that's one of the things he's best at in the league, in my opinion. And it, it's just so strange. And I, I'm trying to, I'm just rifling through it in my head. You know, is this some sort of like Ali saying Foreman's going to punch me out? Maybe this is going to get Luca tired if he keeps having to shoulder this much of the scoring. And that's why we're not throwing the doubles at him. I, I don't know. It's very mystifying. And it seems like it's a very dangerous series to gamble on because perhaps the Clippers are just a few decisions or a little motivation away from completely turning it because they, they should be. They should be in control of this series, in my opinion, just on a talent level. Yeah. And you don't know, like, you don't know what's going on behind closed doors there as far as, like, what they're talking about as far as how they want to guard this thing. But, you know, sometimes in I feel as though with coaches, it's like a guy who fouls um, when they're down, you know, when they're up three, guys who foul or don't foul, and they stick to that philosophy. It doesn't matter if you lose nine games in a row with it. And they'll just say, you know what? Fuck it. That's what I know. That's what we're going to do. And look, they didn't do it all the time. They didn't switch all the time with it. They switched probably a lot less last game than they did in the, in the first two. But it's just evident, like, first of all, screen setting in the NBA for the most part is a joke. You guys slip out of it. You know, you can get through it for the most part. Like, Maxi Kleber is a great screen setter, but that's about it. There's not a lot of great screen setters. You know, 
on that team. And I just think you should just get be able to get through it and not switch and not give them that upper hand. But fuck, you know, look, Dallas has played very well. Last game was a little bit rough, but you know, it'll be interesting what they do, you know, going forward. I'm sorry. I guess another you- another question, a very pertinent question, uh, because famously when we talk about Ty Lue and adjustments, famously in the 2016 NBA Finals, Lou had his players stash just hundreds and hundreds. I think it ended up thousands of dollars in the ceiling of the visitors' <laughs> locker room at Oracle <laughs> Arena because the idea was in order to get this money back, we we have to uh, we have to win and we have to come back for Game Seven. And I can't remember how much money it was, but I think it was thousands stuffed in that gross, grody. Uh, Andrew knows what that visitors' locker room is like that disgusting over large uh, Oracle visitors locker room. Do you think that he's doing it for this series is, is my question or is it fuck it? These guys don't care anyway. I, I get paid too much. I've won my championship. We're not putting any money up in the ceiling of America, American airlines. Well, it depends what do you if, think? He can, if he gets, if he gets LeBron to call the league and get Lucas suspended for a game, he might have a chance. <laughs> But uh, it still it still hurts. That series still hurts, Ethan, as you can as you can hear. But they look. They I've mentioned numerous times. They stole momentum from us. Um, the league had to say as well. But you got to give them credit. They they beat us fair and square as, as far as what they did on the floor. But to me, the Draymond suspension and the rhythm that we were in really hurt us. And then it threw us about. We couldn't recover. But um, Tyloo looks like he's looking down that bench trying to sub LeBron James in the game at times. I think it just just doesn't. He's <laughs> There's been a few memes popping up. He he looks like a deer in the headlights at times when when Dallas are making their run. Like, what do I do? Oh, let's just keep switching. <laughs> it's just like, all right, man. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure, man. I, I, look, I have the Clippers getting game four. I think they've got some momentum back. Um, and I think this game has a potential to go six or seven. Yeah, especially with Luca. You don't know, even if he does play, how effective he's going to be. Now, look, he'll he'll battle through. I almost guarantee that the kid will play. You know, just just knowing the kid a little bit and knowing his shtick, like he's a tough, he's a tough competitive, you know, sob. But I don't know, like it'll be interesting. It'll be a fun series either way. Like you know, the guys are competing, and it'll be interesting how they defend the pick and roll. That's a big thing. And you know, if if uh, you know, Porzingis has got to get going a little bit too. Like you know, it seems like he's out of sorts, folks. What do you think? Like on the offensive end. It seemed like he's out of, rid- out, out of rhythm, and I know he's missed a bunch of games and things, but, you know, like he's effective on his roles. I think he posts up okay, and he makes a couple open shots, but it just seems like, you know, in long stretches that, you know, he, he hasn't been as effective as he should. Yeah, and, and he's not getting those post-ups that he once did in New York. I think that was a frustrating point for him since arriving in Dallas. He's not getting those 18-foot post-ups where he can turn face and go to work because we all know Dallas, um, they love the three ball. They don't want long twos to, uh, under any costs. But, yeah, I mean, since the surgery, I just don't think he's moving as well. I, I think defensively, it's just me, but he was he was much better defensively in New York. He would... There were numerous highlight blocks where he'd chase guys down. He'd he'd get burned in a pick and roll, but he'd recover at the rim. He'd whereas now, like Paul George is putting a shoulder into him, and he's he's in the front row of the seats, and they're laying it up on him. So, my question is, if he's not bucketing for you, you're almost at times better. Dwight Powell hasn't played, but I think Dwight Powell plays well with Luca because he's a hard roller. Um, you can't just continuously pick and pop um, with KP and, and Luca. And I think the times that Porzingis has rolled hard, he's got dunks. So, 
it has been interesting to watch. Um, it doesn't look like he's entirely happy in Dallas, even though they're in the playoffs. I think there was that battle when they first came together between Porzingis and Luca about who was the guy when Luca was a rookie and whatnot. I believe he played his rookie year, right? And yeah, I mean, I think it just it's just one of those things that's manifested that I, I wouldn't be surprised if you know Porzingis is out of there soon. Well, ninety million in three years is tough, you know, to take on. You know, for teams these days, because not a lot of teams have it. It'll probably have to be multiple teams. But it'll be interesting to see. Like, look, they could still, you know, they're still in the lead the series. You know, things are still looking in their direction. But, you know, I think if they win, you know, it'll get better. But it's it'll be interesting. The rest of the series will be an interesting one. I think yeah, – I just, I just got intrigued right there. What about the Warriors? I mean, I don't know if that would be a good decision for them. But, you know, just, just thinking. They couldn't do it. I mean, first of all, nobody's taking anything that they have – Unless you're dealing like Wiggins and Ubre, what's up? No, <laughs> not anymore. That that contract's off. So yeah. you know it, it'll. I don't know about the sign and trade stuff, but like they, it's thirty million. So you got to have to get to about twenty four million. Now that's Wiggins territory. But yeah, again, Wiggins like, is thirty. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, I, I don't know if I'm taking Wiggins on to you know if I'm Dallas, why would you take Wiggins when you already have Tim Hardaway Jr. You know, like. The contract's not that short with Wiggins. I think he's got a couple years left. So it's not like you got a one-year deal, you know, with them. And if you're the Warriors, you're like, you know, you already have Wiseman. And I'm sure we'll talk about that later in the pod. But, like, you know, I, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see who would trade, you know, if there are trades out it, there. What, what look, I think it's a, hard, it's, a hard, it's a hard deal to move your iPro. But I, I just feel like – I just don't think Pozingas is happy there. I, I, that's the feel I get just as an outsider. I don't know anything – behind the scenes it's just the feel that I get I think he played much better basketball in New York I guarantee you he's got a best friend or an agent or someone sniffing his jocks and saying you're getting screwed in his ear so that, that's the only reason I'd pen that but let's move on otherwise I'm going to be here all day Utah Memphis just wrapped up game 4 121 and 111 for Utah they're now up uh, now up 2-1 um, Memphis came back in this game, Ethan, as we were talking about. They, um, Utah were up 14 at half, and Memphis came rolling back and took the lead with a couple of minutes left, and then um, Utah stabilized. But look, I, I love Memphis's fight for an eight seed. Dylan Brooks has really been impressive. He's made a name for himself in this series. He was always a talented player throughout the regular season, but really his toughness and scoring, he fouled out late in that game too, which didn't help. This, ga- this series has really solidified uh, Donovan Mitchell is the guy that they need to be firing ISO-wise. Now, Jordan Clarkson's had a great year off the bench, but when it all comes down to it, all their ball movement, all their three-point shooting, when it dries up, if Mitchell's not firing ISO ball in playoffs, I think they're vulnerable. What do you guys think? Yeah, I I think that, again, in the playoffs, that number one option, you need that one option that can get up, you know, just put his head down and get baskets in the right way. You know, they got Clarkson, but I don't think Clarkson sort of is that type of guy. He can give you a great, you know, great stretch runs off the bench and he can give you that sort of that firepower. But like, like when you need somebody to get you baskets and, and that's where Donovan Mitchell is a clear number one option and he can get you that. Like, look, Bogdanovich, you know, Clarkson, Bogdanovich, Ingles, you know, those guys could, you know, even Conway at times can get you points, but like, that it's different when you're getting it in space and triple kick, triple kick, triple kick and find guys. But like to be able to ISO somebody and score when you need baskets down the stretch, especially in the playoffs, you know, Donovan Mitchell, if he's not healthy, then they got no chance, you know, to, to win a championship or to even get to the finals. 
and with him, they're just a different, it's just a whole different mindset. Yeah. And he looked pretty good, at least in the segments of the game I saw while, while talking on this podcast. It looked like he had that burst. And they're an interesting mix of unselfishness and guys who want to shoot it whenever they get the ball. And he just seems pretty essential to their balance. And there was a lot of reaction when Memphis took that first game of people saying, hey, the Warriors didn't make it, but man, the Grizzlies are really going to put on this fight that the Warriors couldn't provide. And call me a homer, but I, I remember looking at the situation and saying, can you really fairly assess this without Mitchell? I just don't, I just don't think so. I don't think that that win, that first game win, uh, is necessarily as predictive um, of whatever is going to happen the rest of the way. And that's just a big swing factor. The Jazz look like a totally different team with Mitchell back. Um, and I do think they will control the rest of the series. And the momentum that, that, that Memphis carried in from those playing games, I think that really helped them in game one. And I think they've, they've kind of fizzled out a little bit since. But yeah, I think Utah, we'd all agree, we'll, we'll get through that series as they should. The final one, which I found really interesting, LA Lakers, Phoenix Suns. The Lakers, end of the day, they're still defending, defending champs. They're starting to find their rhythm. Things are starting to come together, and now we have CP3 uh, reportedly hurt his shoulder. I don't know if he heard it flopping or actually heard it in the impact. You can never tell with him. But um, one thing, one stat for this series, gentlemen, when Scott Foster has refereed Chris Paul <laughs> in a playoff game, Chris Paul has lost 11 straight playoff games. Ooh, what's That's going crazy. on? That's crazy. It's crazy stat. Like when you think about it, and Scott Foster's, you, you, we all know Scott Foster. Even Ethan knows the antics that we've had with when I was with the Warriors with Scott Foster and Andre Guadalla and all that kind of stuff that goes on. Scott Foster's a guy that hold grudge, holds grudges and he's a human being. Whether that's right or wrong is what it is. And the, the referees will deny it to dying day, but th there's a human element to it. And everyone and their dog knows that uh, CP3 and Scott Foster hate each other. There's a famous. Um, video of Chris Paul mimicking, you know, Scott Foster threatening to give him a tea and all that kind of different stuff back in the day. But just a very, very interesting stat. And, and Chris Paul, you know, murmured at the end of his press conference, 11 games in a row, 11 games in a row. Number one, will he get fined for that? And number two, how do you guys, how do you guys see all this? I just think, I wish this is one of the reasons why I think one of the reformers for the NBA should be refs should be available to the media. They should get asked some questions that can keep the commentary churning because if I'm Scott Foster, I mean, I might say something like this dude's talking about how he lost a bunch of playoff games that I happen to be there for. Maybe the issue is that this guy loses a bunch of playoff games. I mean, that, that <laughs> would be the first thing that comes to mind. Additionally, um, if you're Chris Paul and you're portraying this as, oh, this is so unfair, you referenced him mocking Scott Foster and imitating him. Obviously, Foster should call a fair game to the best of his ability, but it just seems like some self-awareness should kick in and you should go, wait a second, this guy's really pissed off at me and he has some control over whether I have a good work day or a bad work day. Maybe I should make nice. Maybe I should treat him like a human being, much like we were talking about with media. Um, but it just seems like there's so much hatred mutually uh, and coming from Chris Paul's side, obviously being voiced, that he just doesn't want to lower himself to do that. So instead, he's taken the fight public and he's putting that spotlight on Foster for this must-win game for the Suns. So I don't know if that's necessarily the best way to handle it uh, from Chris Paul's perspective. I kind of feel like Scott Foster is the type of dude to go, well, 
Enjoy number 12. <laughs> if he gets another game in that series, we, we are talking about your we are talking about your president of the Players Association, Chris Paul, remember? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, that's the other thing is that he's killing them in the series. I mean, it's sad to watch it. Uh, it's not a criticism of him because he's obviously hurt, but it, it's not just that they miss what he brings to the table as a very important player for the Suns. It's that he's making them worse when he's playing. Um, and I don't know, I haven't actually checked his status for the next game. So, so I'm not sure, but it does seem like if they could do it all over again and Monty Williams could get the, the choices back, you just play campaign starters minutes and they would have had a much better shot in these last two than giving Chris Paul the minutes they gave him. But they seem they seem dead in the water uh, with this Chris Paul situation uh, unless something changes dramatically. And the positive for the Lakers, uh, LeBron had looked compromised for about four games and not really getting to the rim um, and being stationary, which is one of the reasons why I think that they were sending them sending him way too much help uh, the Suns were, I believe, in uh, in game two and just letting him pick them apart without moving. But in that last Laker win, it looked like LeBron was getting some of that that burst back. He looked a little bit more spry. So I think that's another positive sign uh, amid quite a few for the Laker faithful. Yeah, I think it's I think it's four one, four one, four one in my opinion. I don't think they get another game. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It just they're just too much and, and without Chris Paul sort of firing on all cylinders, they get very little chance and no coach is going to take the ball out of Chris Paul's hands at this point, and they just don't have enough. Look, they've come a long way. They're you know, they're definitely on the on the upswing. You know, as as one of my favorite authors from the, um, you know from the Athletic says, "There's a small step for man and a giant step for mankind." And I think Ethan Strauss said that, folks. <laughs> and you know, we're just going to keep on rolling with it. Let's move on. We've got a lot to get through um, on the controversial side of things, um, Ethan. I wanted, to, I wanted to pick your brain a little bit about how has the media and the NBA, from your time when you got involved, from your lens, how has it changed over the last you know, decade plus you've been, you've been involved with the league? Um, just way more neurotic, way more scared, uh, appropriately so, because if you cover something the wrong way, it could go viral. I think uh, you were talking about how with Kwame Brown, it's not so fun when the rabbit has the gun and he's criticizing these guys who've been criticizing him and they don't like it very much. I think a lot of guys in media went through that in the social media age because, I mean, like we were saying, a player might get mad at you and you might have it out with them in the locker room. That's how it went. And to kind of prove your mettle as a reporter, you would step up to the plate and you would deal with that confrontation. But in the social media era, now they can go at you on social media. They can make you part of the story. I might know something about that. And that really changes the calculus. And people don't admit it. Uh, nobody wants to seem scared of anything, right? Uh, nobody wants to say, hey, you know me, you know my thing is uh, I – am terrified of being criticized on the internet. Nobody openly said something like that, but it definitely alters the coverage. And so in a way, I think the coverage has gotten more sycophantic uh, because of that dynamic. And it's just the path of least resistance to do a lot of happy talk and not just give you know, more objective kind of analysis. Not everybody has the kind of disagreeable personality um, that can withstand everything that comes with that. So I think that's the main, that's the main thing I've seen over time. What would you say is a positive change then? I think that 
uh, the analysis is smarter. It yep. might be less prone to criticism, but there has been an arms race uh, among people on the internet of who can break this down smarter, who can break that down smarter. I mean, I'm just giving bullshit takes in your pod. I'm not breaking it down near on the level that some of these guys out there can. Uh, Nate Duncan comes to mind. He's got a real gift for in-the-moment granular analysis. So I think that um, you've seen people through independent media and, and gate crashers really step up their game and go a deeper level into the strategy. And then there's just a better facility with statistics. I remember what it was like back in the day around the Warriors before this all shifted. You guys would try to come up with some sort of stat. You know, I think we're, what are we on defense or offense? And the same thing would always happen is that you would say, Ethan, what is it? And I would never know, but you were just like stereotyping me as the guy who would know because I looked nerdy enough. Um, but now if you look around, I wouldn't get called on. There would be, there would just be a section of the press scrum. It's like somebody from over there and there would be an answer unlike there was whatever I was called upon. So I think that there's a, a, a much smarter analysis um, that you can also benefit from as a fan right now. Yeah. And I think it's the access the NBA provides is obviously world-class. It's, it's just, you know, which I think they overdo it sometimes, um, which I've spoken about at length before. Sometimes you've just got random people in the locker room that have a blog with three followers that are really just fans that want to take secret photos of Steph while he's tying his shoes. But um, do you enjoy it like you once did when you first started or have you become a bit of a cynic like old Bogues? Well, I was always a bitter cynic, um, but it's just a far different experience, especially the last year and a half. I mean, who even knows what it is anymore? Uh, I miss being a beat writer sometimes. I miss aspects of it. And it was a crazy ride to be on just following your team and what that was all like. And I will remember a lot of those those moments for the rest of my life. But um, it was too lonely, frankly. I mean, the thing that would bum me out, not that anybody cares about the downsides of, uh, of my job, but I would remember that you guys would be eating the catering after a game and it would be midnight. Maybe we're in Houston and you go, okay, well onto the bus and you'd all hop on the bus and fly out to the next locale. And me like a shitty private detective, I would just saunter back to the hotel room and then wake up at 5 a.m. and take a, a Southwest flight to the next uh, Midwestern American city. And, um, you know, it was just it's it's lonely, frankly. And uh, that's that's an aspect of it that that's not so great if you're on the beat side of things. General NBA media. And, and I only say this again, I, I'm very lucky to have been able to do what I do. I know people are listening and thinking, well, I have this job and it sucks. I don't want to hear about it. I only say it just because sometimes what people hate about their jobs is a little bit unexpected and not what you would think. The, the aspect of NBA media work that is the worst is just timing. That when you show up to a practice, Raymond Ritter's Raymond Ritter Warriors PR will say the doors might open at at noon and those doors might open at 1130 and they might open at two and you really don't know because nobody gives a shit about you. The valuable people are inside that practice that you are not allowed in until it's done and guys are taking their free throw 
you know, their free throw routine or whatever. Um, so just the idea that you're trying to tell your wife or whoever in your life of when can I do this? When can I that, do that? And you're just always on the NBA's clock and you just don't even know, you don't even know. And then you combine that with, you know, extend that out of, and this is what you've also had to deal with. Hey, can we, um, get dinner with this couple in May? It's like, I don't know, maybe, maybe not. Depends on what happens in these games. I really don't know. So those things, um, not so great. I, I do miss I do miss aspects of the beat just because you're you're on the ground level for really cool moments and just the energy of the crowd and you see things that would just blow the minds of your friends and so that was all very cool. But I like where I'm at now. I like I like where I'm at where I can go to a big game if I want to go to a big game. And I can take a little more time to write something if I want to if I want to write something that takes time. And I don't have to just be on that constant grind. I think it's something that is it's better for a childless guy in his 20s uh, than somebody in their 30s who has a family. And you, you just hit it on the head, man. I was going to follow up with this. Like I was enamored. Like, I never – I doubt many NBA players think about it, but I hit a, there was a season I was in Milwaukee. So when I was in Milwaukee, we had Tom Enlin, Charles Gardner, were kind of our beat writers, guys that would follow us around. And I remember that exact thing. Like we'd have a back to back, and we play. All right, we're playing in Detroit tonight, and then we fly to Indiana the next night. Uh, the ne- that that night to play, and then the next night, two games in two nights. And I'd remember seeing like at a shoot around, Charles Gardner would already be there, and you could tell he was banged up, man. Like <laughs> he just, he's obviously just taken a you know first uh, sunrise flight out of where, you know Detroit to get to Indiana, and then traveled, hasn't slept. And I was like, man, these guys these dudes have it rough. Like they have it really, really rough. So they're already like some of the dudes are already a little cranky and on edge. And then, you know, you might see some players mess with them a little bit and that bad, bad article comes out. And like, I would then understand, I understood a little bit better. Cause it's your, you know, talk about NBA players, road trips. Like, like you said, chartered flights, chef prepared meals, luxury hotels. You guys are on, on commercial last minute trying to get here and there. A game goes to double overtime. You're losing sleep. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's a really valid point that it's not all it's cracked up to be like people think you're not just sitting in a locker room with the boys having a beer, talking shit and writing articles. It, it really is a job that takes a lot <laughs> well, out of you. The, 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 there's this other aspect too, where I, I like writing more than most people. I, I enjoy writing. Um, it's one of the few things anybody ever told me I was good at, um, but writing can be tough. And so I've have friends who will say to me, like, dude, you have the most amazing job in the world. That's incredible. And I'll just go, Hey, um, you know, take your favorite hobby, uh, whatever it is. Um, and you know that feeling you have where you always back in college or high school had an essay you had to write? Uh, apply that uh now to your favorite hobby. Um, for the next few years and get back to me and tell me how much you love it. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but there is. <laughs> I, I mean, folks, if you're having your $72 omelet, omelet at the fucking Four Seasons, poor fucking Strauss is on C38 fucking uh, status <laughs> on Southwest, sitting next to fucking <laughs> Diane from Kansas City that just smoked 12 packs a day and he has to sit next to that and you're fucking with a $72 fucking omelet, you know. <laughs> so, uh, sometimes St. Elmo sometimes St. Elmo Steakhouse you know I would splurge I would live the player life but you know yeah only but if no Groupon was it. fucking daily the thing was like there'd, <laughs> no. there'd be not one player that would give that a second thought do you know what I mean like no one you'd just be like oh they're here again today like but you, no one would be like hang on like I flew on a private jet 
the night night before. Like, how did this dude get here? Like he wasn't flying private. Like so I, I don't I don't know. It was just it was just a funny observation I always had. But um, finishing on the journalism stuff, I believe there's a massive competitiveness within within your code within your brethren, um, as to say where. You know, everyone wants to break something first. Is there is there a click within a click where you can't ask certain questions or certain things are frowned upon and you don't want to be that guy? And, and we'll get to it a little bit later on with the ratings chat, but I feel like at times you might be that guy that ruffles some feathers within your own industry. Well, maybe, but it would happen, I guess, when I'm not around, hopefully. I, I guess people are pretty nice to me and I'm too emotionally oblivious to see if they're really angry with me. There are rules, there are codes. I remember Lee Jenkins was uh, in town to visit a Warriors practice years and years ago before he worked for the Clippers. And because he's somebody who's, he's literally, he he grew up a block from where I grew up. So I, I just felt very comfortable and I asked, hey, what are you working on? And Marcus Thompson, now of the athletic pulls me aside, I was like, hey, hey, don't, don't, don't do that. You're not supposed to do that. Because People are afraid of giving up their angle or getting a storyline stolen. And it doesn't mean that Lee Jenkins thought I was doing that or that I would do that, but you're putting somebody in a you're putting somebody in a tough spot, I guess, if you ask right there. So there are certain there are certain rules, there is competitiveness, but ultimately, I'm actually surprised often at how cordial it all is within media. I think people from Enemy media outlets often have a better connection with one another than players on the same team. If I go into a locker room, um, not a locker room, if I go into uh, the media room, uh, it's often, ah, oh, look at this guy. Oh, wearing that again. Da, 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 da. It, it's kind of nice. And I don't think that's the case with a lot of other sorts of media. Um, I think in political media, it's very vicious. And you see how people regard each other and attack each other. Think about it. You don't see NBA media people going at each other on public on Twitter that often. I mean, everybody has their opinions um, and people talk shit behind the scenes. But A, I would say, and I'm not lying here. Like, I really mean it. I have more admiration for colleagues than I express. I think I don't express it, A, because I write articles and it's not a time where I would go, you know, oh, you know, Zach Lowe is he's not only a great article writer um, and game observer, but he's an amazing interviewer. You know, there's not really a space for me to say that. And B, I don't really get into the Twitter stuff and I don't tweet where I guess you would give those compliments. But I, I look at a lot of people and I think this person does something that I can't do. You know, I'm I'm very confident and happy about the things I can do, but I will look at somebody and I mentioned Nate Duncan. Nate sees things that I cannot see. And so I have um, a lot of admiration for other people uh, in the industry, number one. And number two, it is surprisingly, it's less vicious behind the scenes than you would think, even if sometimes people get into standoffs and pissing matches and everything else. But I don't think... I don't think it's at the level of what you would see in an NBA locker room, I guess is what I'm saying. Unless there's no citations. <laughs> that, that's when you guys really <laughs> yeah, get angry, unless. right? That, that pisses you guys. That's your, that's <laughs> your uh, walking time bomb, right? If someone doesn't cite you, yeah. right? Yeah, that's, that's something that people get mad about. Sometimes stuff gets stolen. Stuff's been stolen from me. Shit would get stolen from me and get put on broadcast. It would be really annoying because I was working for ESPN. And then I would be watching the game and Jeff Van Gundy would be talking, just quoting my article word for word as though he came up with it on the spot when obviously he had been 
prepped by some PA or whoever. And I was just thinking, really, really, I'm working for ESPN. They can't, they can't just say, Hey, interesting article, go check it out. But, but that's life, you know, that's, that's, it only that's happens the big to the great ones. The TV. It only ha- happens to, <laughs> happen to a good old rogue bows. We broke the NBA coronavirus bullshit rules with guests to their room and we didn't get a citation Strauss. I mean, it was very disappointing. I was heartbroken at that point. Well, I think what you have to tell yourself in those moments, uh, or at least what I told myself, is that if I get really mad about this, it's almost an admission that I'll never come up with another good idea. <laughs> and I just have to feel I have to feel confident that I'm going to come up with another good idea. I can't get stuck on the whole, you took this from me. Nobody gives a shit. It's just nobody, nobody cares. So, um, yeah, that's that's something. But there are various things. I mean, I, I get on people's nerves. They get on my nerves. We have a conversation about it. Um, but I think part of it with NBA media is that you're going to ultimately see these guys at Summer League. You're going to see them in the media room. And you're all these weird carnies uh, who live this strange lifestyle where you don't sleep. And so you got to, you gotta in most circumstances, work it out. So it's not the, – the elbows aren't as sharp as you might think they are, I guess is what I'm saying. Fair enough, fair enough. We'll go let's go on to fan abuse. So it's been a pretty interesting couple of weeks with NBA fan player interaction, if you can call it that. There's three big cases I'm gonna read through right here. First one, Russell Westbrook, popcorn. Everyone should have seen it if they're an NBA fan. A, a fan poured popcorn on Russ as he was leaving the arena to get some treatment, I believe, or potentially even end of game. Um there was some backlash about you know the, the, putting the fan uh, all over socials uh, as per a LeBron James tweet was basically asking for the the fan to be doxxed. Um, you can basically agree with that or not. That's a separate discussion. We had the Jar Morant family racism. His fans reportedly had been uh, racially taunted. A comment that went somewhere along the lines, I'll put a nickel in your back and watch you dance, boy, was said to, I believe, the father of Jar Morant or the mother. Um, Jar's mother, sorry, and then some profanities. Um, Trey Young was spat on by Knicks fans. So those three have been, you know, pretty big news. Um, I'm look, I'm hugely against um, getting touched by a fan at any cost. I don't care what it is, um, unless it's obviously a high five or a handshake. But having something thrown at you, I think, is drawing the line. I think all three of these cases, the teams have come out and, and banned those fans indefinitely. Now, does indefinitely mean forever? Who knows? Um, but I'd hope it would for, for most of these. If the comments that were alleged with with the Morant thing, that's obviously my opinion frowned upon. But it just seems like a real testy time in in all of pro sports. I don't know if it's a flow on effect from you know the last four years of Orange Man and Trump and all that going on and everything going on with BLM and all those kind of things. But it, it just seems like there's so much. I mean, just a toxic environment right now. How, how do you how do you see that, pro? And then give me a follow up, Ethan. Well, I just think that. The fan thing, they're just so on top of you, you know, in, in certain arenas too. And it just gets to be, you know, they want to get involved. They want to, they sort of like want to be in the game. And they think by doing that, you know, like getting into it with, with players or trying to make a, a move on players or, you know, spitting or, or doing something like that, that they're doing, you know, their teams some service. And, you know, it, it's a look at me. You know, it's a look at me sort of society we live in and they want to go viral and they want to be important and they want to be sort of, they want all this attention. I think it's dangerous at some point. I think the NBA and these arenas and these teams have to really set this code of standard for 
as a fan, you know, what you can and can't do. And they have to police it. I don't care if you're in the, you know, on court side or you're in the last row touching the arena, you know, sailing and everything in between. There has to be some type of code of conduct and you have to sort of, you have to be there to sort of police the rule. And it, it is dangerous because look, anything could happen, you know, especially when things get testy. You know how these, some of these crazy fans are. You know, and, and look, you got to deal with it as it comes. You know, you got to try to police it the best you can. But I think the NBA does a pretty good job when they catch things like this, banning fans and, you know, trying to deal with them in certain situations. I think sometimes now, you know, you, you see all the players sort of calling the league out and things like that. We got to do this. We got to do that. I think the NBA does what they do. They do the best they can. They're not going to be perfect. You're never going to have a perfect situation with these fans, you know, because you're going to have a certain – uh, percentage of this element of evil motherfuckers that are doing some stupid shit alcohol because they think yeah alcohol all this stuff you're never going to get a perfect situation but what you can do is deal with it the best you can police it like i don't like the fucking courtside fans like the ones that get up the ones that get in referees faces to make calls the ones that go at players like i think there needs to be a strict code of conduct it starts with them that they need to sit their asses down. I don't give a fuck how much you pay for that seat because now like, and then also the player has to, you know, they can't be going off and fucking fans and, and, and sort of rolling them up either. So, you know, it's a two way street, but I think obviously it comes more from the fan than it does the player. But I just, it's a very dangerous deal, but I think the league has done the best they can to try to police these things. Yeah, you saw after the popcorn incident, um, guys around Westbrook, staffers did a great job making sure he didn't get into the stands, which would have been understandable from his perspective. If somebody throws food on top of you, that's a pretty, pretty good incitement to fight. And if he got into the stands, understandably pissed, uh, God knows what happens at that point. So that was the weirdest one too, by the way. I mean, some of the other incidents, you hear that this happened and you don't have video of it, but to have video, I, I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to out-compete anybody because when somebody's obviously wrong on the internet, there's this game of one-upsmanship where I think he should be banned for life. I think he should go to jail. I think it, it just becomes one of those things. But it was some weird degenerate behavior. Sometimes I can think not understand in the sense of empathize, but I can understand like a drunken fan throwing a thing. But that guy, he he snuck into that little area almost like an assassination and and dumped the popcorn. Just really weirdo behavior. And I do wonder if being away from people for over a year, uh, having society so atomized and just socially restricted, and then all of a sudden you bring it all back together and there's booze and it's an emotionally charged event, um, we might be seeing that not every effect of that is positive, that there might be some overflow because we're also seeing fans in baseball beat the shit out of each other in the stands too. It's hard to it's 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 hard to know it's hard to know because it's all sort of anecdotal and we're not statistically analyzing that there were this many fan events and da, 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 but it does seem like something's up it does seem like like the behavior of fans has been altered from what it usually is you know the thing is like uh, I, I never would want and this is, i'm not condoning what happened for all these people out there that are going to fire up i don't want my wife or kids you know visiting teams arena wearing my jersey, knowing that it's clearly my wife or kids. And now, should you be allowed to do that in a free world? Of course. Should you be able to do that without receiving racist taunts, popcorn? 100% agree with you. 
my point is I'm not even putting them in this situation because I, I just don't trust people, alcohol, mass groups together, that group think, group think, group do mentality when, when people are drinking and it becomes tribal. I'm not putting my wife in that situation. And that was the reason why I didn't have my wife in Cleveland when we won it. I didn't have, have her there when we lost because it just it's just something that I don't want to be worrying about. I don't want to worry about that they're okay, that my kids are okay. And, and I know if I bring my mum or dad, they're going to want to wear my jersey and be proud. And I just I just don't want to put them in that situation. But the one thing you guys are missing about all of this, and I made a comment about it, this was Philadelphia. I'd be more shocked if there was no popcorn poured on someone's head. Honestly, like it's it's Philly, it's and and Philly fans are going to get all fired up. But I've got a few teammates that have played there and said it it, it is the hardest place to play as a home player they come and boo you and <laughs> basically throw shit at you so i'd be more shocked if they had you know their next game in philly and, and and no one got hit with anything i'd be like holy shit that's amazing but also like what like the nba players are upset about it rightfully so but like what do they want no fans you know like well that's that, that's the thing like bradley beal is saying that we need more protection we need more protection like what that like a sniper takes out the guy after he throws it i mean what could you what what, what could realistically be done i you ban the guy for life and i mean i think lebron's tweet was sort of interesting because he wants the guy basically doxxed and wants that guy's life to be ruined, which is what would happen if, you know, he becomes known as the guy who did that. Now we can have a conversation about whether that's deserved. Um, but it's the internet is not a proportionate, uh, I don't even know what the hell to call it, but it, it has a proportionality problem. So I, I don't know. Maybe that's what players want. Maybe they want the lack of privacy for the fans who do it because that's really the only thing I can come up with that's going to deter the behavior. It's never going to be perfect. It, it, it isn't. It's just these fans are too into it. You know, some of them are borderline psychotic. Not a lot of them. Most of them are decent people. But like, like Bogue said, like you go into an arena and you have to worry about whatever color you have on or jersey you have. You know, hopefully you don't wear a fucking jersey to a game and you're an adult. But like, actually, like if you have like a team t-shirt on and you're going to get your ass kicked and your brains beat in because of that. I've had that happen to me. I, I told Bogues on a, a former pod. Ainge took me to, we, we had an exhibition game when I was at the Celtics. Danny Ainge took me to like the East, um, the American League championship with the Yankees and Red Sox. I can give two fucks about baseball these days, right? So I had like an all Jordan sweatsuit on. I'm up in the fucking upper deck. Of course, Ainge is sitting there with like ownership down and fuck, you know, probably sipping champagne in the fourth, fourth row. But like, I almost got my ass kicked and I can give a fuck less. Like the guy from New York says, you're from Boston, aren't you? And, you know, I, I, I couldn't name fucking three players on either team. And I almost got my ass kicked. It's just like, you know, it just gets to be like these people, some people that go to those games are fucking intense and they want to beat the fuck out of you. And it's just like, you know, you, you're never going to, it's never going to be perfect. There's always going to be an element like that. And you just got to do the best you can to police them, get them out of your building you know, whatever the punishment's going to be, it's going to be, and you move on to the next thing. Because I don't think they want that in their revenue split if you stop fucking these people from coming to games. <laughs> you, you know, think? like, yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah, you, yeah. Th you know. You hit on the head though, yeah. bro. Like, you hit on the, I, I totally agree with you. You handle it case by case basis. 
one dickhead doesn't equate to 10,000 dickheads in an arena. You handle the, the guy yeah. that messed up with full force, ban him for life, get him out of there, see you later. But yes, we will move on, Ethan, because I want to get to why you were frowned upon by many in the NBA at times, and that's the <laughs> NBA the NBA ratings chat with Ethan Sherwood Strauss. So I follow this very, very closely, not just because you've written about it, but just, just as a whole, that there was a noticeable decline over the last couple of years in NBA TV ratings. Now people will, will factor a million different things. I felt like you had a pretty insightful article. I can't remember what how long ago it was, probably 12 months ago now, where you, you went pretty in-depth about breaking down everything from coronavirus to um, BLM to social justice stuff to fans having you know less money, whatever it was. You, you broke it down, I think, pretty well. And you copped a lot of shit for that. Um, I know because Twitter said so. Um, so I, I saw some <laughs> some comments and posts, and some was from p- people within you know your own your own industry. And I just always found it interesting that there was nothing really controversial said by you. You, you backed everything up with with numbers and facts that you got from from the broadcasters themselves about declining numbers. Whereas when I see different you know, journalists out there that are on the NBA, on the NBA beat, either nationally or within a team, there's a lot of spin with the way they write it. I mean, we we laughed about it probably 10 episodes ago, Pro, where it was like NBA ratings at an all time high, but they're down or something. It was something, something worded along those lines. And you're like, no, I, I think it was in- the, uh, it was like NBA ratings. Uh, impressed despite all time low. Yeah, they like, for the All Star like, game. What? Like, well, what's going on here? But. <laughs> You're one of the few guys that at least had the balls to, to write what I, I think is the truth. The ratings are going down and, and it's not the end of the world and it's not because of one particular thing, but talk to us a little bit about digging into that and once you realize that things were dropping and, and I mean, I, I want you to touch on kind of a little bit of, did you, did you get backlash within your own uh, own group of you know people essentially in, in your group chats or was it kind of just kept quiet like the elephant in the room? Well, that article, not to give too much away about our back-end stats, I think is is my most read article, subscribed to article. So there is this funny uh, chasm between Twitter criticism and actually what people like to read and what they'll reach out to you in private and they'll say, good article, and I didn't know anybody else was thinking about this or talking about this. And that was that article for me. And um, I I started to notice it because I always paid attention to it. I'm just a nerd about that stuff. I'm fascinated about why is something resonating? Why is something a hit versus why is something not a hit or what's even a hit? And to me, it's it's a pretty big deal. And I also cared about the NBA. So I was invested in, okay, is the NBA really getting better? Is it getting bigger? It seemed like the Steph Curry era, for instance, and the 73 wins that the NBA really had that zeitgeist and was just absorbing a lot of the gravity in the sports world at that moment. So I'm I'm always tracking that stuff. I'm always into it. I'm always interested in it. And I started to notice um, that it was going the other direction. And I think one of the reasons why my article uh, got a lot of readership and a lot of backlash is because what was being said was completely the opposite of what we were being told otherwise. And there was just this big disconnect. And a lot of people were surprised because they were constantly fed and it's adjusted. So it's almost forgotten. Like the conversation around it is already adjusted a bit, but 
for years, it was NBA on the up and up and up, straight to the moon, sport of the future. You can go back and see various prestigious publications saying that it would overtake the NFL. I mean, you can go back and you can read that. Uh, around 2017, 2016, when the Warriors were killing it, when the NFL had these concussion scandals. And to constantly be told this, but the reality, when you actually look at the measurable interest within the United States, it's dropping like a stone. Um, eventually, I just added it up. I mean, it was basic math. It didn't even require much in the way of uh, of division and multiplication. And it was, yeah, uh, on ABC, their numbers are down 45% within eight years. Um, they've lost effectively half their audience. And that was before the pandemic. Now, with the pandemic season, they have lost half of their audience in, in nine years, half the NBA viewership. And so what's amazing to me is, A, that this happened, B, that we were told the exact opposite was happening as this was happening, C, how so many people in my industry say, shut up about it, uh, it doesn't matter, uh, this is a boring subject, and finally, D, that they say, shut up about it because, I don't know, uh, it's untrue. I, I, I mean, the, the whole thing is crazy to me. It's, it's basic, it's numbers, it's math, and anything you want to say about streaming or you know this or that isn't captured, I just don't think is true because over that same time period, the NFL and the MLB were flat. So this was clearly an NBA-specific issue. And uh, for anybody who wants to say that, it only affects how much money ends up in Joe Lacob's pocket or whatever. I mean, it changed the league. The reason you guys are talking about the play-in tournament is because the ratings collapsed. The NBA will never say that, but that's what happened. Interest in the regular season completely collapsed. And the NBA, I think to their credit on this front, they're trying to juice the numbers back up and they're trying to return some interest and intrigue to the regular season. Because guess what? TV runs the NBA, runs it. That's how they're able to have a playoffs with no fans in attendance because the TV money is huge and it swings by tens of billions depending on whether interest is increasing or decreasing. So I, I don't even know where I am in this particular ramble. I guess I just get frustrated after a while that the legitimacy of the topic needs to be defended before we even get to the topic itself, which is interesting. You don't have to be interested in it. You can be interested in other things. Uh, but if it is something you want to look into, there's a lot there. Um, and at least for me, it's something I enjoy writing about. I, th I think it's warranted. I think um, that there definitely is some smoke to it. And I noticed exactly the same thing. I, I noticed you call you were called numerous names for, for pinning these articles at times. And then I also noticed there was some journalists saying, why does it matter? Let's stop talking about it. Who cares? This is so last year. Nothing, you know, let's move on. The NBA is still doing well. It's just to me that solidified that I think it is a concern. I think it is a concern for the yeah. NBA. It's 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 a it's a cope. It, let's face it. Let's be real about it. it. You don't need to be the greatest psychoanalyst to see it. They wouldn't be saying it if the news was good, and they won't be saying it if the news is good because the NBA has you know some good stuff happening this postseason. We'll certainly have better numbers on the viewership front than they had in 2020 in that in that bubble mess, but that's what it is. It's, I feel uncomfortable. Like I, I want my industry to do better. Or, I mean, the other aspect, frankly, is that it's become part of the culture war. And so people get dug in on that front and they don't want to admit reality. And 
you had Donald Trump making fun of the NBA for its ratings. You think about NBA media uh, and how NBA media is probably over 90% uh, non-Trump supporters, and you've got the guy they hate most mocking the NBA for its lack of popularity. That's going to alter how they approach the issue. I think a lot of people at that point are not going to just cut and dry, let's be objective, let's look at it. And so I think that it's a it's an issue uh, that people have a lot of denial about right now. They really are not into the idea that the political messaging from the league might have some sort of popularity cost. A, because nobody they know would have any issue with it. Um, <laughs> and B, because they just don't want it to be true. But the NBA has a very particular, peculiar problem, which is that it is the archetypal blue state sport but it is disproportionately in red state regions because that's how they wanted to make money. You know, the more, let's call them podunk cities, we're more willing to say, screw it, we'll tax our citizens. We want to make the big time. Please bring an NBA team to Oklahoma City. Please bring an NBA team to Tennessee, even though Memphis is obviously, you know, votes Democrat, but the surrounding area. Same with New Orleans. So the NBA has a disproportionately Republican audience to draw from. One in three NBA fans, according to market research by the National Media Research Company, are Republican. It's it's one to two Republican to Democrat. So that's majority Democrat, but one out of three is Tony Gwynn's batting average, right? Like that's a lot of people. So the idea that is often being promoted that what has happened socially has no impact on popularity, I would respect it more if the idea was, hey, Fuck those people. If people are mad, they're mad. This is more important than that. That would be honest. I think what's dishonest is to say the messaging is brave and heroic, and by the way, everybody loves it. That makes no goddamn sense. <laughs> yeah, and that's I think that's where it gets muddied. It gets muddied because politics is involved, and it becomes tribal like anything else. Like we talked about the fans before. It becomes tribal, and it's like, oh, no, not my team. Not my team. My team's doing fine. It's got nothing to do. And unfortunately for all our listeners, there are. Republican um, fans, there are Republican coaches, there are Republican players, if not closeted. They might make a minority of your league, but they still support the league in some capacity. And whenever you you get political with anything, you have to respect both sides of the argument. And as soon as you shun one side, which I think some fans arguably felt, you're going to lose some fans. And that's that's taboo to talk about, though, um, which which I think is the unfortunate thing. Which is weird. It's weird that it's taboo to talk about. I just think it's it's reality. And I think for mentioning that, and you know, I probably was a little more controversial than you're than you're describing, to be fair to people at an issue. I, I do I I haven't said anything that players should alter whatever they're saying. For a variety of reasons. One of them is that I don't think it's tenable for the league to say to superstars, you can only talk about this or that. Um, I just don't think that's a good idea. So I've never said hey, players should avoid saying this or players should avoid saying that. Um, you know, say what you want to say. Uh, but I think where it's gotten weird, actually, it's, and I mentioned in the article, it's some of these coaches obviously afraid for their jobs, obviously afraid of not being able to connect with their players and are overcompensating in public to a ridiculous degree that just doesn't, it doesn't feel authentic. 
And nobody around them is saying that. Certainly not a lot of people in NBA media are saying that. But it, people watch. People know. Like People have common sense. They, they know. They know when they're listening to do it. They're going, oh, well, I know what this guy's job is and I know what he's doing. And they also don't necessarily look at it. Greg Popovich as the uh, president of the world who uh, is going to give them their marching orders and they're going to follow it. Um, so that was the criticism I had was you, know, you got you got guys like like Greg Popovich um, who basically drafted a team according to as he explained to people that he did not want American players. And I think everybody knew he wasn't talking about Matt Bonner when he talked about how American players don't work hard and are selfish, right? And he's got a lot to overcompensate for considering all the stuff that was said in the past. And I just don't believe it. I'm sorry, but I don't. And I don't, I think a lot of people don't. And so I mentioned that and that might have been legitimately a little bit taboo. And I think a lot of people got their backs up when, uh, you know, guys like the sainted Greg Popovich were, uh, were mentioned in that way because it does seem like something where somebody should at least talk to them and say, maybe you're, you know, you're at like an 11. Maybe you should just dial it back because a lot of people are kind of noticing that this isn't about them. This might be about you. Fair enough. Definitely fair enough. And yeah, it's just an interesting time. Whenever politics get involved in anything, things get skewed. Um, analytics get skewed. Stats get skewed. And I think we see it in this case. I think there is, there's not an end of the world issue for the NBA with ratings, but there is a steady yeah. decline that, that needs to be spoken about um, objectively. And we don't need a, sit here and cry over spilt milk but um i will say great input on this segment pro it's been much appreciated <laughs> well, yeah, pro, which- the- <laughs> pro, pro can't get past i've listened like pro can't get past the fact that this is happening but the next tv deal is going to be even bigger I that's, just, something that's, that- the, that's the only thing i fucking talk about with ratings folks like <laughs> you know I, i'm reading all this shit about their fucking ratings going down yet the tv contracts keep going up not I get. I guess with the streaming and things like that, you know, maybe it makes it obviously that much more valuable. But it's unbelievable that the TV contracts continue to go up if the ratings, you know, are going down like that. But again, I'm not a businessman. I have no idea how to read that sort of. Uh, it's, element it's almost of like the game. there's. It's almost like there's a lot of unacknowledged inflation uh, right now uh, that is reflected in NBA team valuations and a lot of other products. So that's part of it. But yeah, the other part is streaming um, and having just differentiated content. So the NBA is not going to go broke. Um, certainly, they're going to get a better. They're going to get a better deal. But a lot of their decisions are going to be based upon. Uh, how can we start doing better? And I, I do wonder if eventually there's a reckoning. I do wonder if eventually uh, this just makes everything so unwieldy. But I think it's an interesting topic on a lot of different levels. I mean, the thing that really killed them um, as far as the ratings downturn, I can see if you want to peg one moment to it, it came a lot of it came after the Daryl Morey. Uh, Daryl Morey China stuff with LeBron. And so I think that's an issue that that's a big blind spot for people who make decisions for businesses because these guys are frequent flyers. They're world travelers. Uh, they see nothing wrong with doing all this business with China. And then you look at the survey data of the American public and how the American public views China and how, you know, maybe 78% blame China for the, uh, for the pandemic that's killed 600,000 Americans. And it's really hard going forward for the NBA to do. They're almost, you know what I would say? They're almost so cynical. They're naive is what I would say about this, where they just think nobody's going to care. 
Like nobody's going to care. Nobody cared before. Nobody gives a shit. We can just do whatever we want. We can just have any sort of relationship with China. Nobody in America. And I, I think they might, they might not see what's coming around the corner. I don't know. A, how much fans are going to like that, and B, just even if the relationship between our countries is tenable. So that's the additional thought on it, on the UN edition of the Rogue Bogues podcast. That's it. That's it. Let's move on to something that Pro can comment about. We've got a few more segments left. We're at two hours. Going strong. So Pro, we're going to talk about some some weight issues with one of my um, Australian female counterparts, Liz Cambage. She uh, got called 300 pounds by an opposing head coach. Basically saying, you know, she's so big, look at her, she's 300 pounds. It has not been taken lightly um, by, by Cambridge, to say the least. Now, we've all heard it, you know, when people were referring to Shaq, it's like, man, he's 400 pounds. Of course, he ran him over. That's the context this was set in. I've heard the comments. I don't think anything was malice. And nonetheless, Cambridge went on social media and said something along the lines of this. Something went down in today's game and I need to speak on it because if there's one thing about me, it's that I never let a man disrespect me, ever, especially a little white one. So to the, Connecticut, to the coach of Connecticut, I'm sorry, little sir man, I do not know your name, but the next time you try to call out a, refer- call out a referee trying to get a call being like, come on, she's 300 pounds, I'm going to need you to get it right, baby. I'm 235 pounds and I'm very proud of being a big bitch. Big body, big Ben's baby. So don't ever try to disrespect me or another woman in the league. Pro, give us your weight take. Uh, currently at 242, just so you know. Um, but first of all, I want to start a GoFundMe for that head coach because he got fined 10 grand and he won't be getting paid for the next 18 to 24 months uh, <laughs> to, to make up for the 10 grand that he's oh, going to wow. make. <laughs> but the second, uh, the, I mean, oh, I it's a double, it's a double standard, right? Like it is. It, it look. I mean, obviously, it's a mean comment. I get it. But like in the men's side, you hear that all the time. The guy weighs three hundred pounds. How can he get him out of the fucking lane? Like you know, you hear that. And in the women's side, obviously, you gotta, you, you know, it's sort of a little bit different. It, it's taken much differently. And. I don't know, man. I mean, like, yeah, the the comment, if the comment was made off the court, like in just regular society, yeah, you could probably say that, that that was a mean comment, blah, blah, blah. But it's in competition. It's the games. I'm sure there's a lot more shit talking that's, that, that gets taken into it. But the whole white comment, I mean, obviously, it ruins her whole deal to me. Like, I listened, I, I saw the video of her talking. And that whole, like, you're a little white man. Like, again, whenever you put color into it and race into it, to me, I got to put, I got to, I got to, I call bullshit. I call bullshit because, like, you don't want to be called out for that, but yet you'll call them off being white. You know, why can't it just be a coach? You know, it's the same thing. I try to judge everything on the same level. But, look, it's a woman thing. It, it Obviously, they're more sensitive than guys are with their weight in most cases. And it's going to be you know, it's going to be blown out of proportion. And I just feel as though that like, yeah, it was a comment, a little off color, but I mean, that's just in competition. You know, I think there are a lot worse things you could be called than that. And yeah, I don't know. What do you guys think about it? Yeah. I I mean, when I first heard about it, I thought it was really a pointed comment. I thought it was, hey, fatty in there is doing such and such. I, I didn't know it would be 
just a, an explanation of physics of, come on, she weighs this. It couldn't possibly be a foul. I mean, that's such a regular, that's such a regular comment that you hear in basketball um, when you're trying to argue a call. So, I mean, pretty insane overreaction. I believe he apologized. Uh, they, they probably, he was probably pressured to do so. He should probably, have. yeah, um, <laughs> probably, yeah, probably. Yeah. I would assume, but I, yeah, it's, it's, it's a different culture in the WNBA. I don't claim to know everything about it, but yeah, this just seems like a, a real overreaction. And, uh, that's, that's all I really got because that's, that's the only context I have. I, I actually literally don't know that coach's name, unlike her who was pretending because she was so mad. <laughs> Kurt, Kurt Miller. I'm about to look it up. Look, I'm, I'm going to be honest. Just, I don't, I don't follow the WNBA probably much like you two guys don't, but, um, man, it's, it's just, it's, where are we going to go? What about if you say DeAndre Jordan's at the three, he can't shoot. He let him shoot it. <laughs> <laughs> is that going to be an issue? Going I forward? would love to see what would happen. I would love to see what would happen if a player did, uh, if, if a player in the NBA did stage a complaint like that based on their weight getting made fun of. I think the reaction would be, it would be brutal. Well, one uh, is a potential is, is MVP assumption. of the NBA right now. How much shit did he cop? Have you seen, we've all seen the meme with him as a kid with his, with his titties, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Everybody <laughs> talks about, I mean, dude, like Harden like- too gets it. Uh, Luca gets it. Um, it's it's like frankly Sweetie, good Curry, fun. Shaq, like I mean, it's I, I just I just don't I cannot believe they find the coach and suspended him a game. I I just can't believe I, I'm on the pro side of things. Get them two in a room, hash it out. Like say, hey, coach, look, just tone it down a little bit. It's a sensitive league. We can't we can't be saying those kind of things. Here's, and get on with life. If he had said two, if he had said two hundred and thirty five pounds, is it okay at that point? Was, was, it, <laughs> was it just a numerical mistake? Is he is he getting fined and punished for just a numerical mistake when he called out the weight? Is that what's going on? It was like six hundred dollars per six hundred dollars okay. per pound over. I think it was that was the ratio they used. <laughs> the best part about these comments are like no one's going to disrespect me, and then finishing your paragraph off with. I'm a proud big bitch. <laughs> I'm just sitting there like. Okay. What was the big Benz? Is that a, by the way? Is is that an Australian term? Which you were saying the, the no idea. I think it's <laughs> it might be something. It might be Mercedes Benz. I'm guessing um, hip hop culture. Maybe I, I have no idea. I plead the fifth on that one. But she finished her own yeah, sentence off know. by contradicting her initial gripes with the coach's comments. Kind of killed it for me, but I, I love piling on on old Cambridge. We, we, <laughs> she, we've had a good history. <laughs> she almost closed it. She almost closed it out by saying, "I'm th- and I'm three hundred pounds." No, it's just like, I mean, the whole thing's crazy. It's totally crazy. But the reason why it happens is that everybody is afraid to engage with it. Nobody wants to get in that particular situation. Nobody wants to be the subject of the sort of uh, social media posts that that she put on out there and I think in those conditions uh you're going to have you're going to have people act in a certain way because there aren't many consequences on their end and there are a lot of consequences for the person they're attacking and everybody else is just going to shut up about it. I mean, I certainly I don't talk about anything on Twitter, but even if I was somebody who did, I'd probably look at that and go, "Yeah, do I really want to burn calories defending this coach?" Uh, from this thing and get attacked by the people who are mad at him. I think that's the calculus people make, and that's why these sort of things happen. And everybody in secret, because I heard a lot of people in, in just quietly on this one talking amongst themselves, saying like, "Oh, man, this is kind of a crazy overreaction," but yet it happens. Mm-hmm. And it is, and that's why we need more rogies in the world podcasting, more rogies in the media. 
Let's finish off with this final segment. I'm running over time. The Golden State Warriors. We have the guru himself online, so I have to. I have to ask. Let's break him down a little bit. Where do they stand? Where are they at? Does Curry stay? Clay's health. Do they rebuild? Do they tank championship or bust? Or are they middle ground? What is going on, Strauss? You pick the championship. Pick next year for us. <laughs> Strauss Adamus. <laughs> Strauss Stradamus, yeah. They seem like okay, so here's my formulation. They're not far away, but they need to make a really tough decision to get there. That's how I see it right now. Because as we have discussed, it's almost like they're in this stalemate where Draymond, who raises their floor so much, um, offensively puts the ceiling on them. These teams are playing him with that Steph, uh, that trap on Steph. They're playing him for that floater. And, you know, in these two games for their season at the end, they really struggled to score. And so obviously, Clay's return will help with the spacing, but they've got this issue. And the other issue they have is that he's fantastic as a small ball center. Uh, at the five, but they drafted James Wiseman, who obviously is a center and with Steph had terrible chemistry. Their numbers were awful. And you can say, hey, he was a teenager, but they want to win a championship and you're just gambling a lot on it going right. So they've just got these two big elephants in the room of the Draymond situation and the Wiseman situation. And it's not exactly clear to me what they should do. At the same time, I think that they're only a few veterans away from competing for a title, and they don't need another superstar necessarily. They just need to make these really difficult decisions pan out for them. Mm, I think it's. I think they're in a tough spot. I think they really are because um, not to toot my own horn, but I think the five spot with the Warriors is a, a Bogut late in his career, a Zaza, a Javelle. Oh, David West. The Bogut theory. Uh, no, I really do because I think you need a guy. No, no, I like. I said it. I was on. I was on local radio. I was on Tolbert's radio show, and I, I credit you with this theory. And I'm calling it the Bogut theory that for so long that okay, I, I'll let you say it. You're you're actually Bogut, so you can say it. <laughs> you, you say can the chime theory. in, but I, I just think you need a role playing five man. I think that's the elephant in the room with Wiseman. You've drafted a, a top five pick, um, a lottery pick that on most teams would be invested in getting post touches and getting involved in the offense where he's essentially, hey, we're going to throw it to the post to you every now and then, but don't try to score. We're trying to run a, a, you know, a decoy to get Steph a three by throwing it inside. And that, that's the role. I was okay accepting it late in my career. Um, Zaza was, Javel was. We're cool, we're cool with that and we're winning with it. So it was not a problem. And that machine's been oiled that way for you know, almost a decade now. Whereas you, now you have to develop a five, make him a scoring threat. There's no post touches. It's just a clunky fit to me. I, I don't get the. I don't get it. Um, and I just don't think it works with the Splash Brothers there. Um, and this isn't saying that someone needs to move on. It's just I think Wiseman's ceiling is not going to be hit with this team. He cops a lot of shit already in his first year. They're already, you know, his fans already wanting to throw him off a bridge and get rid of him. I think that's really unfair. I think you got to wait two or three years. But I don't think he's going to get you know, what he arguably would with a, a Washington or let's say a Memphis without Valanciunas yeah. where he's going to play. And you go, well, hey, you're going to, like Pro always says, we're going to let you make your mistakes. We want you to go to a la Julius Randle, get to your first round and take your lumps. How else are you going to learn? I don't think he gets that with the Warriors. And I think that's the elephant in the room for me. So that's why I would move on from him, in my personal opinion, and try to get a third wheel, a third wheel star and try to get over the hump. Stephen Clay aren't going to play for 
a seven, eight, nine seed, you know, for the next four or five years. They they want to get over that hump. So now you're in a in a predicament where you're like, okay, even fully healthy, are they winning a championship fully healthy right now? Probably not. There's still a few pieces away, in my opinion. Role players, Andre Guadala types, and they don't have that on their roster at the moment. Yeah, if uh, Wiseman stays on the Warriors, he's got a good chance of making wildly entertaining YouTube videos 15 years from now that that we all enjoy <laughs> where he defends his career and his life decisions. Um, yeah, that's I find the Bogut theory fascinating. The idea that the Warriors always wanted this all-star scoring big high upside guy because they didn't have it during this championship run, but maybe nobody was asking whether they never had it for a reason, that it didn't really fit them, that something else fit them, and that sometimes less less can be more. Um, and I think that there's some truth to that. Obviously, there's a superstar type of big who would be incredible with the Warriors. I mean, if you put Jokic as their center, right? I mean, that would be that would probably be amazing. But what does um, it do for Draymond then? You know, that's that's the other the other thing is if you bring a playmaking big in like that that plays big bog man, it's like a Jokic. It takes away from Draymond's strength. Draymond's strength for that team is is floating around at the three handoffs, just knows, you know, second heartbeat to Steph, knows when to get him the ball, knows his pattern of movement, when he's going to be open. And that's where Draymond's use is. All of a sudden you get someone like Jokic now who you can put in that spot, shoot the three and do the same things as Draymond. You gotta put Draymond in the dunker. You know, that that's that's the other the other aspect of it. I don't think you can do that. Yeah, that wouldn't fit. I mean, they don't have that option. Although there were a lot of rumors that Sabonis for Draymond could have been a thing about a year and a half ago or so with the Pacers. I don't know how real any of those talks got, but that that's an interesting road fork right there um, because that's offense for defense. But God, I think that would be that would be probably uh, an incredible fit for them um, if that had happened. You got to figure what they what move they could actually make look Wiseman if you're going to go forward with Wiseman you got to have to sort of get away from what how they've been playing split action he's not that type of player the only passes he gets and the assists that he gets are like dribble handoffs to shooters he's not gonna like catch yeah. it on the block you do the split action hit the cutter he's not he doesn't think like that he's not a cerebral player what he does really well is roll to the rim that's it. He doesn't pass out of the short roll. He doesn't, he's not really a post-up scorer. He could face up and shoot. His footwork is terrible. If he's got a doctor of footwork, I'd sue that motherfucker for malpractice because <laughs> he travels every time. Like, but what he does is he's a roller. He's a, he's like a, he's a Dwayne Deadman on steroids is what he is. So he's not a cerebral player. He's not a go-to guy. He's a roller. You know, his jump shots are erratic. He can make shots at times. But you're not going to play through him. So, like Bogue said, are you going to you, you need Draymond at sort of at that small five? Um, you could play him at five and Draymond at four, but you're going to have to change the way you play. And I don't think Steph and Clay would really work that way and, and really get to where you want to get to. The problem is what trades are out there if you're going to move Wiseman going forward? Because look, would, would, would Dallas do Draymond plus uh, plus Wiseman for for KP? Just spitballing off the top of my head. I'm not even saying it's a good trade. It's just popped in my head. I think they would based on toughness, you know, just protect Luca. He's a smart player. He's, you know, he's an alpha dog. They don't really have that besides Luca. They don't really have that alpha dog type guy. The problem is, do you want, if you're Golden State, do you want to take on 90 million 
and if you're not sure about it, you know, yeah. they have that. I, kinda, I, I like it a little better for Dallas than the Warriors. Oh, no, but Dallas does that in a heartbeat, man. <laughs> yeah, they do it in a heartbeat. They do it in a heartbeat. But, like, again, you got to know, you got to figure out what you want to do because Wiseman's definitely not a player. Look, he in development, guys like that, they always get better. You have to sort of figure out one or two things. The problem is he can't do – like, you can't get him to a level that he's never going to be – and I don't think he's ever going to be that go-to type of guy that you want him to be. I think he can have some flashes. He, like I said, he could roll. He could run. Um, defensively, he's just okay. Um, he's not a passer. He's not a playmaker. And like Bogues said, Bogues, you know, uh, Zaza, guys that sort of can make plays out of the five, you know, sort of pass and, 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 and be that facilitator, uh, rim protector and things like that. I don't think I just don't see him as as, as that player, but you know they got to figure out what they want to do because you're not trading, you're not trading Wiggins until his last year of his deal. Clay, I don't think anybody sort of like gives you a lot for until they figure out if he's healthy. I think some teams will take a flyer. You're not going to trade Steph Curry, and you know so what? What do you do? Like I remember we talked about trades potentially just making them up for Brad Bradley Beal at the beginning of the year when Washington was in the tank, and maybe they would do it with the pick Wiseman Ubre because the, the salary would work. Again, I think you have to figure out what can you get. Like what are the potential players I, you could actually get for him? I'm way I'm way more open to the trading of Wiseman than I was early on, but the Bradley Beal thing. I know he's a great player, but it just seems like that's not what they need. It seems like it's redundant where you already have Steph and clay and now you're getting another guard score on top of that. And Wiggins wants to shoot. Um, I mean, it's, that just seems maybe not the right move, but yeah, I'm open to it. And there's, it's a big risk. That's a big risk for Myers because when we talk about Wiseman, we talk about all these things not working out so far and the bad plus minus and not reading the defense and everything else. He's also really talented. I mean, he is gifted. He is gifted physically. He can do a Euro step like he's a guard. Uh, he's the fastest center I've ever seen. Um, and, you know, there's a chance that he could have a credible jump shot. So uh, you look at the you look at the trajectory of somebody like Aiton, who now looks awesome for the Suns. Um, and you think you deal this guy at the low ebb of his value and he actually goes to a team where they play pick and roll all the time, and he gets those chances to make those mistakes. I mean, you might never live that down if he really pops. Yeah, but the the interesting one in the interesting one for me is 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 Steph going to sit idle and be okay with being a middle tank team? I mean, what do you hear in Strauss? He's got one year left on his deal. Is he? Is it a situation he where he doesn't he, want he, that? He, he is not. You you know you know too. You're playing coy by asking me that question because you know. Steph wants to compete for a championship. Coy. Like that's what he wants. Coy, no, I'm I'm more thinking of Steph is the Bay Area. So I was I'm I'm trying to ask you, would he be an uh, I'm all in Golden State no matter what? Or will it will it will there be that predication of hey no, like we need to, I need to see a, a plan of us winning games the next couple of years before I even think about penning? Well, they haven't agreed on that extension. And so here's where it gets interesting. I think Steph has about as much power as he's ever had, never going to have with the Golden State Warriors. He's never going to have more influence than he has right now 
where they want to give him this extension um, and he wants to compete and he just came off an MVP level season. And that really changed the dynamics here because nobody knew what Steph was going to be. He was injured all of last season. Uh, He's getting older and he comes out and he looks like one of the best players in the league. And it changes the situation from, okay, how good Steph going to be to, oh my God, we're squandering an MVP level player and maybe we really got to go win now. I mean, I think that might be the shift. That might be the shift in mentality. So I think Steph's going to try to use his leverage. I don't think he wants to leave, um, but I think he wants the Warriors to think that he's capable of leaving. So they do what he wants. So they actually get back in the game because he really values winning championships and he measures his legacy according to that, uh, to the point where he set his ego aside and accepted Kevin Durant to come to the Golden State Warriors. So that's the situation. And I think those are the dynamics uh, that might push James Wiseman out of the Bay Area, even if Steph isn't saying specifically get this kid out. He definitely wants to win now. He doesn't want to squander a third season in a row. That's for sure. I just think the issue they're going to have is the more you – like, I'm not going to give up on Wiseman for sure. Like, I think he's going to be a good player. But you don't want to – the more that people see him, the less they'll probably give you for him in the sense that, like, the more you see him in these go-to roles, like, I think you could have – because of the draft being so new – like in, in his career being so new, I think you could have gotten a lot more this year dealing them. And because look, they're built for now. They're not built for five years from now. They don't have it. They're just okay on the second unit. The young players are just okay. Decent players, but like the Wiseman's going to be the only guy that gets you really something in a trade going forward. Like we said, like I don't think you, with Clay and Curry, you know, I don't think anyone's giving you a lot for Draymond. Wiseman's the guy, and if you're gonna deal him, you're gonna deal him now. But what can you get for Wiseman? I think that that that's the next question you got to ask yourself if you're gonna do a deal. Folks, what do you think? Like, there's market value for him. Like, if you're a team, what would you give him hypothetically? If someone says, "Hey, I can get you Wiseman in a pick," what 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 are you giving me in return? Oh, it's, it's a tough one. If he's on any other team, I keep him. I agree with you. I think to give up on a on a young big after year one is is suicidal. But the elephant in the room is Steph yeah. wanting to win. I, I know for a fact that Steph and you know even Draymond to an extent, Clay Clay wasn't too involved. But that that season they had a couple of years ago before this this past one that was was horrendous for them. You know, and and even Steph's um, loss after the playing game. You know the. Um, Putting the Wiseman jersey on, it, there's just some some something going on there. In the J was it J Cole? I don't know who the video was with the, the selfie video or the IG live, and there's some stuff going on that I just think Steph's in a, in a position where I don't think he can endure another 30 win season or 20 win season, especially considering that's what he went through his first couple of years in the Bay, and he's built up this this now winning brand which he deserves. I mean, he's one of the best players in the league, and coming off an MVP caliber year. It's a tough one, man. I mean, I just, I just don't know where you go. That's why I asked this question, and and it's not a coy question. I don't know what direction they're trying to go because you, you can't, you can't be middle ground, half rebuild, half appeasing Steph to win. You're either all in to win, which means then, yeah, you got to move Wiseman, or you're all in development, which means Steph probably doesn't want to be there. So it's and, and, and it gets weird spot. because y- you know the Lakers. They're actually 
the opposite of a lot of bombastic owner types where they like the draft. They like buying into the draft and having draft picks and they're all about that. I don't know if that's a venture capital culture or what. So they're almost more resistant to the win now mentality than you would think just stereotyping a egotistical owner. Um, and so there might be a tension. I think that there's more trust the process patience uh, in ownership than there is at the player level. And where Bob Myers falls in all of that, I don't know, but he's got to earn his uh, he's got to earn his money on this one because this is a massive offseason for this team. Ethan, let me ask you a question. Since Steve Kerr has taken over, what are the young players they've developed? Uh, the great Kevon Looney. Uh, you're not you're not respecting Kevon Looney. I mean, come on. I mean, this is one of the best screen setters in the league. Uh, don't kill my yeah. guy Looney. Looney's a great dude, and he he plays his role very very well. But he I, don't kill my I, guy. I, I love. I so, love Looney. I, I can't. I, I can't talk too much shit about Looney. And I think no, but I'm saying uh, trust. Yeah. Trust the process. Like, what's yeah, your process you've had? And that's the yeah. thing. Like, is that going to be a focus? You know, a focal point. And have they done it? Well, I've heard. You know, I'll, I'll, give you, saying, I'll give you one thing. I've, I'll give you one thing real quick. I've heard that that is an actual concern for them. Um, the last over the last course, you know, couple of months, and rumor has it that they have about 15 development coaches <laughs> running around in that gym right now. So. I no think they shit. know. I think they know it's a need to be addressed, but I don't think hiring a, a boatload of development coaches, where I believe you know, it's there's a lot of different guys running around, not knowing who to work with, or, or it was like that at one point. Um, but they know it's definitely an elephant in the room problem for them that they're aware of. Yeah, and Jordan Poole is the guy who really popped for them, but that happened. It seemed. When he went down and got some G League reps, um, and you know, credit to them, they incorporated him into what they were doing at the upper level. But if Jordan Poole hadn't just popped, it would be a very ugly scene in terms of uh, in terms of development. But so Scott you know, we Anderson even... actually done well. He he he's not a bad young player, right? Yeah, but he's twenty eight. Um, oh, that's a good point too. Yeah. <laughs> but but, uh, but but Jordan, yeah, Jordan Poole, we haven't brought up when we talk about trades and and everything else. I mean that that's a guy who, uh, yeah, he's he's really talented. I mean that guy that guy has given them something that they didn't have even in the championship run of uh, he can score in his own and play with Steph if you need him to play with Steph. And I really want to see what it's going to look like in a lineup that has him. And Steph and Clay together, and that could be offensively potent. But yeah, they haven't really developed guys. You could also say on the other side of things that they were drafting at the bottom, which is what happens when you win a lot. Um, and so maybe that's part of it. But I do think that they are a team that um, is used to win now mode because they were playing for a championship year after year. Earlier in the season, Wiseman uh, got suspended from a game because over the All-Star break, he missed two coronavirus tests. And I guess the question for me is, I, I don't want to bail the kid out of making a bad choice and not doing due diligence, but a lot of these teams, because I would hear this from people with other teams, you know, if one of our young rookies fails one of these tests, we're all over him and we're driving him to like the next one. How does he fail two tests? And you have to wonder if this is a team that's used to having 
players in their late 20s who have played for championships. And this is a different thing. More hand-holding, as you guys say, might be required for a James Wiseman than the players that they're used to. So that also might have factored into why it hasn't been the greatest incubator for young players. Yeah, and the benefit of the doubt for um, the argument against why there hasn't been a player, a higher you know, player development ratio coming through is that haven't had to. You know, It's been a championship or bust year pretty much for every one of Kerr's years besides the last two. So that hasn't been really an incentive where now, now it's starting to, to, to poke you know, its head through the hole. So they, they, need to, uh, they definitely need to fix that and, and produce some more of their own homegrown talent. But as we all know, that's- I want to interject because I just got a memory and I want your perspective on it real quick before, before I forget because it's late and I'm stupid. Um, I talked to the great Kevon Looney about his rookie season and he said that Basically, nobody talked to him. Like, he felt like a ghost because he was injured and he was a rookie and he wasn't playing. And it stuck in my mind as this is what it's like for a rookie on that particular team. Was that your, was that your impression of what it was, what it was like? Like, you were, you know, nobody was really caring too much about old Kevon Looney over there when you guys were playing for 73 wins. Oh, it was, it was a strange one because he, he came in and had double hip surgery, I believe. So he wasn't playing, but. Man, no matter who you are, when you're when you're long term hurt in the NBA, it sucks because there's a lot of different things that happen. There's number one, there's people looking at you. If you've got an injury where you can still walk, they look at you like, "Hey, man, he's walking. Why can't he play?" You know. So you got those questions. Then once you start ramping up your workouts, you might have, okay, they're 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 letting me do 20 minutes on the court at light speed of just touch shooting. Player might come out like, "Oh, he's shooting out there. Why can't he play? We need the body." So. There's a lot of different pressures and you kind of do get forgotten about. I, I, I did the same thing with my ankle when I first got traded there. My rehab took so long to get back and, and you feel like everyone's looking, looking at you at times and why, why guys not really talking to me, but you kind of, you're not ostracized from the group, but you definitely feel like you're not part of the group as an injured player. And that's just, that's the reality of pro sports, right? You're not, you're not in those battles. You're not in those close games. You're not on a lot of those road trips now because injured guys don't travel. So you're missing a lot of the camaraderie that's built up. And I'm sure Kevon probably felt that where he was kind of, and a rookie, hadn't proved himself. People were kind of like, what the hell's going on? You know, did we waste a pick on him? We should have got a player that could have helped us. So, you know, I kind of feel bad now that you say that because I feel like maybe I should have had more conversations with him, um, with my grumpy self at times. But uh, that's just the brutal business of the NBA. When you're hurt for long periods, it can mess with you mentally because you start, you probably start overthinking things a little bit more than more than you should. Mm. Did you get... Uh, an injection in your ankle in that Nuggets playoff series in 2013. I've got this vague memory yeah. of it happening. But yeah, yeah, yeah. My ankle was. I shouldn't. I shouldn't have played that whole year, really. Um, and I came back. I, if you remember, I played the first four games of this regular season, trying to come back like a hero because I just got traded there. And then the thing was like a balloon after every game. Had to shut it down f- till January, late January. Came back for the playoff run. And it was, man, I, I was almost close to retirement into that season. Like You can ask Harrison Barnes. I had many conversations with him about it because I just couldn't, no matter what I did, my ankle would not get better. I, I'd massage, acupuncture, got- ice bars, blow up, blow up, blow up, blow up. And I was like, if this goes on for another year, I can't do it. So, yeah, I was, you know, taking stupid injections to get through that series. And it worked well, though, because I got another three years out of him <laughs> at 36. Oh, you, you, had, you had a hell of a series in that Denver series. You had that dunk, I remember. that uh, Dunks? I had more than yeah, one, man. I, I, Come on. But yeah, no, that was a that was my best series as a Warrior <laughs> in the playoffs, probably. That and the Memphis series where I really played well defensively. But being injured is never fun in the NBA. But um, 
Let's get through these last two segments real quick. Uh, we'll go through them real quick. We have a we have a useful or useless stat segment, Ethan. So there's a lot of stupid stats out there. So we we either have dumb ones or good ones, and then we debate whether they're useful or not. So here's the first one. Curry shot 53.8% on contested three-point field goals with an average distance of 27.2 feet. The entire NBA shot 52.6% on contested shots in the paint within an average of 5.1 feet. Is that useful to us? Useful. I mean, it tells us there are two kinds of stats. Uh, One that shocks you because you go, oh, I wouldn't have expected that. And one that shocks you because it proves what you already know, what you already know, but to like such an extent that it's still crazy. And this is the latter category where, yeah, we all know it, but when you put it like that, yeah, that guy, uh, hey, I don't want to make any waves, any more controversies, but that, that Steph Curry guy. You can play, huh? Pretty good three-point shooter. Pro. Yeah, I mean, I agree with Ethan. Like, you know, some stats you just you look at and you're like, holy shit. And I mean, if he's shooting 53%, on contested three-point field goals at 27 feet. That's a, that's a pretty – I mean, it's a useful stat to tell you how skilled that guy is. And then also, if you're going to, like, break down players at that dis- – or from different distances, contested versus non-contested, I think it's a pretty useful a useful stat. But, yeah, I think that's a pretty useful stat to see the fucking distance that that guy pulls up from and Man. how efficient that he is from it. Amazing. And I think it's why we saw teams basically doubling him at the half court line in those playing games. Like they actually had, you know, almost like a defensive line forming around him, like throw it to anybody else, even wide open, we'll take our chances. And that's an, um, to me, it's, a, it's, it's useful to an extent. Um, but man, that's, that's just unbelievable. You're shooting better from 27 feet than most players in the NBA do at, at five feet. Contested too. Yeah, Contested, it's, it's which is crazy. Just an amazing number. Next one, 11 games in a row when ref by Scott Foster, CP3 loses in the playoffs. <laughs> Refs are human. I mean, I'd say it's a useful stat. I, I would need to know all the circumstances of, uh, of the matchups. He hates Chris Paul. That's your circumstance. There you go. <laughs> but I mean, talent-wise, I mean, some of those were against the Warriors, if I recall, who had the uh, the Rockets number in those series. So, um, yeah, I'd say useful stat, uh, probably an indication. But hey, he's the crew chief. He's not the only. He's not. He's not all the refs. Yeah, there are a lot of factors going on in these games. Pro. Uh, it's pretty interesting when you lose 11 games in a row, you know, ref by the same guy, or even though there's, you know, three man crews, but, um, like you said, he fucking hates the guy. So what are you going to do? <laughs> you know, that's, that's, that's sort of what it is, right? He fucking hates him. And Hey, look, if you, I don't give a fuck what kind of ref you are, good, bad, or different. If you fucking hate somebody and you think they're jarring you and, and showing you up, you're not going to fucking give him calls. Do, 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 do you really want to antagonize a guy who has power over uh, your job who makes a shitload less than you do? I mean, just the, the resentment and the ability for revenge is there. Why give it to him? Why even allow why, – why, that's what I don't get. Why antagonize? Why do it? Yeah, it's an, it's, emo- it's an emotional game. Yeah, they have so much effect in the game and they never get fired. They have to like, they have to try to assassinate nine world leaders for a fucking NBA ref to get fired and taken off games. So who gives it like, I would just say, fuck it. Like, put, I always told guys that have problems with referees, look, 
Put your arm around them, especially young players. Put your arm around them you know, the next time. Don't say anything. Next time, you know, put your arm around them and say, hey, what did you see there? Because this is what I saw. And, and, you know, and just even if you're fucking bullshitting, you're faking it. I mean, I don't know. What, 11 straight fucking games. You better send some fucking edible arrangements to that motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh... <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, you got to work the refs uh, off the court, on the court, however you can do it. Um, but yeah, yeah send Jake, send, send fucking Jake from State Farm and that motherfucker's house with a free policy <laughs> or something. Last one we have is Jason Tatum, the only player in NBA history pro. This is a good one too, Sherwood, to have fifty points in a playing tournament playoffs and regular season this is actually from per sports center can you believe that stat who would have thought give that motherfucker a raise man give that fucking guys <laughs> oh girl at sports center a fucking raise <laughs> useless yeah i mean i would put yeah i would put that in the useless uh useless category it really <laughs> yeah give him a raise and with that raise for a dollar a month you could read ethan strauss with his fucking <laughs> fortune cookie fucking wisdom hey I've got an article out right now I want to promote uh, on the local ratings for the NBA and the surprise in that, that we didn't even get to talking about that. Hey, shocker, uh, teams that draft players uh, as opposed to players who just join on and sign, uh, those teams that are built around drafted players do way better. Fans form a connection with them. Uh, so, you know, something to think about if you want to trade James Wiseman or whatever, uh, you know, some something to look at. You know what? Fuck it. Use my use my sign in name, hostess, password, <laughs> cupcake. <laughs> I should promo that better. It also proves that Steph is the biggest draw in the league, TV wise. So you know, hey, at the Athletic, Ethan Strauss, give me a subscription. What's it costing us? Um, I I don't even know. By the way, by the way, Bogut, but he comes back to the Warriors in 2019 and we're talking about the athletic Tim Kawakami in the locker room talking about the athletic and Andrew, he, he wants a subscription. He wanted us to just give him a subscription for free, and he just wouldn't let up about this. You've made like a, over $100 million in your career. You want the athletic subscription for free? It's on principle. Hey, on principle. Hey, and I got it for free. Raymond Ruda gave me his uh, login. Thank you, Raymond. Oh, hey, folks, you know what? It cost us two hours and 45 minutes and counting about fucking lives that we won't get back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see. Hey. <laughs> All right, let's go to fact and fake news, and then we're done. Fact or fake news. So give us All a right. fact or fake news. First one, I'm going to go to you, Strauss. Would KD still be in a Golden State uniform if Ethan Sherwood Strauss did not break his nuts on a daily basis? <laughs> fake news. I mean, I just I, as much as I want to go with the joke and I like the idea that I, I chased Kevin out of town, the reality is that Kevin was out of town and didn't like that I brought – brought it up that that was happening so he would be gone that was the die was cast and you can see that reflected in a bunch of interviews that various players and steve Kerr have done about the situation bro what do you think Folks, I, to us? I heard if i heard if ethan said kevin rome wasn't built in a day he would fucking he would assign for the minimum <laughs> i should have said many hands make the work light look at your there teammates you here look at your support there you fucking go. Uh, <laughs> yeah, 
I think it's fake news. He he was out anyway. Yeah, fake news. And fake plus news. he moved. And plus he he moved three thousand miles away from the prick. So you know he, he got his win win in the end. Win win. Yeah, win win. All right, next yeah. one. The Miami Heat blow up their roster this offseason after getting absolutely pummeled by the Milwaukee Bucks. Fact or fake news? What do you think? Mm. First of all, Bugs, what do you think of that? Oh, I think they got to do something. Um, I think Duncan Robinson's a wanted commodity in the league and will be. Um, Jimmy Butler hasn't worked out yet. I don't know. I think it was pretty dismal. Something, something's going on there. So I think the, I think fact. I think they're gonna they're gonna make some changes. Yeah. Ethan, what do you think? I- yeah, I think I think so. I just wish I knew what was going on with Jimmy Butler. I mean, you guys have me wondering if something's up, and it's hard for me to know wh- how they should proceed if I don't know exactly uh, why the hell he was so disappointed in this particular postseason. But yeah, I think there's some impatience there, and they went very much win now. So shaking it up makes sense. I don't know what we're judging as shaking it up, but shaking it up makes sense. I mean, they're going to have to do something. And plus, Duncan Robinson's probably going to get anywhere from 16 to 20 million in free agency. So, and they're probably the best team in the league at handling the cap. Um, I'm going to say fake news and said, and now if they lose guys in free agency, that's one thing. But I think they're going to, if, if Jimmy's okay in the sense that like that story wasn't true and, it's just he had a bad series and we're reading it wrong. I think they keep it, you know, but I think if there's something wrong, they're going to get somebody out of town. It's not going to be their coach. And it's probably going to be Jimmy Butler if that's the case. I don't think they're going to re-sign Victor Depot with his health. Um, that's, a big you know, offense, that's a big offense that Trump built that you're sitting on right now. No, no, no. If they lose Duncan <laughs> Robinson, they're going to lose. They, they're going to lose him. But I'm saying – it depends on what happened to Jimmy Butler. But I'm going to say no, they don't. I'm going to say, you know what? You know, Riley's pretty good with this shit. I think he'll figure things out. They got a good team. And they were competitive. Forget about the bubble shit. They were pretty competitive at the end of the year. And they were they were, they were were rolling at the end. They were inconsistent most of the year. And then they got it going. You can blame COVID. You can blame whatever. But they got a good fucking team, man. I, I say they keep it together. Okay. Last one, Kwame Brown ends up with his own talk show by the year's end. He's currently, gentlemen, at 301,000 subscribers on YouTube with his mama's cooking. Fact or fake news, he has his own show by the end of the year. I mean, that's a fact because it's already true. He has his own show. Why does okay, he need sorry, a studio? An actual, an actual, his own paid show. Um, no, I'm, I'm, I reject, I reject the premise. I'm taking this question in the spirit uh, that it's asked. <laughs> I don't see it happening that he has a, a Jimmy Kimmel like talk show, but this is TV in the modern era, right? And he needs to team up with a producer though, because I mean, just like there are only so many people uh, who will be able to power uh, 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 through. Watch out, power- man. You don't want to be on that list, man. Watch, <laughs> watch what you say. Oh, you no. do not want to be on that list. Hey, on that I, list. I, I'm at. I am at the level right here where if he uh, if he went after me, it would help me as opposed to some of these people were, were some. But uh, by the way, I was expecting much more out of Stephen A. Smith with that, that was video horrible. he put together. That was like, awful, bro. The the clips of of like mess ups, like who gives a fuck? Like <laughs> yeah. I thought he was gonna go hard in. Yeah, yeah. it was brutal. Sorry, Ethan. Yeah, I should have prefaced that with what I meant by own show. Someone's actually gonna pay him. 
in the form of mainstream media or hey. an all the smoke type podcast. Someone's going to actually do it all for him, pay him. You come here and talk shit. That, that'd be my detailed question for Fact or Fake News. I, I don't see that happening necessarily. I think he's a little too dangerous. He's a little too honest. Yeah. Um, I don't think that there's going to be an infrastructure that wants to marshal uh, their resources behind him only to see him light it all on fire. So <laughs> I don't see that happening. But uh, I am enjoying I am enjoying the show. Hell, I'm even enjoying your show about the show. So the Kwame content has been top-notch. And I I hope it keeps coming. I like the takes. So we're all fake news then. Yeah. I think it's better on YouTube. Yeah. I, yeah, I go fake news. He stays on YouTube. Plus, he gets those fucking tips, man. He makes every video he does, most of these videos, he's making over a thousand bucks easy on just people giving him money on YouTube. It's the most amazing shit I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> we need a tip jar, motherfucker. Yeah. We need a tip yeah. jar. <laughs> yeah, we're going to throw coins I'm over. Sa- over my balcony. Yeah, you're you're fucking bra- you're bragging about how much money you get after retirement. I'm fucking selling blood and semen to pay my fucking mortgage, asshole. <laughs> Hopefully um, not they're, together. They're, pay- they're paying you to no. take that. Don't lie. Anyway, it's been two hours and forty six minutes of pure anarchy. Thank you, Ethan Sherwood Strauss. You got anything else you want to promo real quick? Uh, just, just the column at the athletic. I'm doing TV Fridays where I talk about the sports media business. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. I can't even say that three times fast. And my podcast house of Strauss, which Andrew has appeared on, uh, is a weekly fixture. Thanks for having me on guys. By the way, Ethan, what happened? Yeah. To, what happened to your hit character on your podcast that you used to do? Uh, the what? What did I used to do? What was that what was alternate it? character that you had on your podcast that you used to do? <laughs> oh, radio, radio, Ethan, the uh, the blowhard yeah, guy who back. yells Come different. On, it takes. <laughs> the problem is, it, it became one of those things. I was like the sitcom character where they just wanted me to say the catchphrase. I had too many colleagues asking me to do it after a while, so uh, I'll break it out. I'll break it out sometime for the playoffs. I'll pro, do it. pro, what do you got for us? Want to promo anything besides McDonald's? For a dollar ten a month, you could have Ethan talk to you and get that bullshit character that ain't worth fucking the ten cents you're gonna have to pay for it. <laughs> Ethanquotes.com. All right, thanks, gentlemen. Appreciate it. That's episode twenty-two of the Rogue Bogus podcast. Like, subscribe, all that fun stuff that uh, Ethan said, and we'll catch you next week.